I grew up in the, the 70s when the director was king. Um, you know, and all the foreign directors, Truffaut, Fellini, every, uh, De Sica, you know, I mean, it just, and all the uh, Scorsese, uh, Coppola, uh, Spielberg, De Palma, I mean, it, they, were, they were marketing films based on the directors. Uh, the directors weren't traffic cops there. You were getting their visions. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I always wanted to direct. Getting an idea. Praise the Lord. My father, he loved movies. And he took me to movies from the time I can remember. He took me to everything, uh, even things that, I mean, I was, when I was young, it was before the ratings even came out. Um, but he took me to everything. He just loved movies, and he instilled that love in me for film, for actually looking at movies. He wasn't a filmmaker. He just loved movies, and he had an encyclopedic uh, knowledge of film. And then uh, a guy named Frankie Blondes moved into my neighborhood in New York, and he was the president of Paramount. And I met him when I was about 13 or 14, and we clicked. And uh, he, uh, he shared uh, my enthusiasm, which was great to have somebody like that. And he would take me down or invite me down to Columbus Circle, where Gulf and Western was, and I'd be able to screen movies, and I'd give him my opinion, and that type of thing. So it was just a, it, everything kind of fell into place. So I got to see the business side as well. Um, with my father, I was just going to the movies and enjoying it. With Frankie Blondes, I was actually seeing a business side that was very interesting to me. I've been thinking about it. There's something in my head, and I got to get it out. What is it? We got to go down in the swamp first. Man, I don't like that place. It's part of the plan. Plan? We have a plan? Tonight, I have the ultimate plan. This plan doesn't have anything to do with the storm, does it? We're going to do this right. I was living out in Los Angeles. Um, I had been working on uh, films uh, that Frankie Blondes was doing. Um, and then off of those, I met other people and got to work on uh, other films. And uh, I got signed to ICM as a writer. Um, and uh, Leo was a writer as well. We hung out a lot just playing, you know, the beginning of video games and uh, pinball in, in Westwood. And uh, we throw ideas around. I think we went to see Halloween. And, uh, you know, as I said in the commentary, uh, the hubris of youth, we thought, we can do something better than that, <laughs> a little different than that, um, not, not the classic horror genre. Um, and then uh, I worked on a film called Old Boyfriends that Talia Shire starred in. And we were sitting around the set one day, and she, we were talking, and she said, you know, it was a bunch of us, what, and what do you want to do? And I said, I'd like to write, direct, and produce like your brother and Francis Ford Coppola. And she said, I said, but I don't know how to go about that. Or She said, just do it. Just say you want to do it, go out and do it, raise money, do everything you can do to get it done. And that stuck with me. So when we wrote this, we felt it, I felt it was 
commercial enough that we could, the idea that we could go out and raise money independently for it because we could package it as a horror film. Um, and we did. I created uh, an, an LLC uh, with another guy I knew, David Steinman, and um, we went out and we raised money. We ran out of money <laughs> and had to put it on hold and then go back out and raise more money uh, to finish it up because the, we were sloppy the first time out. Uh, but we tightened it up, got financing to finish it up, and that's really how it came about. But it was Leo and I just hanging out and, you know, talking movies and playing pinball and going to movies obsessively. Uh, Lindsay Anderson, a big influence. Clockwork Orange, a big influence. Um, and, and we wanted to go that way instead of horror influences. Um, it, so it was more along those lines than, uh, you know, say Halloween or classic horror films. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of horror films. I wasn't influenced by the 80s uh, slasher films at all. Um, but again, I think we were trying to hit certain notes that would make it easier to get a distribution deal. But we wanted to make sure that it played into what we were doing. So there was nudity. Okay. There were killings. <laughs> There were killings with knives, there were killings with pencils. And we thought we brought a sense of humor to it. We didn't see it as super serious. We were telling a story about an outsider or outsiders, uh, kids who uh, didn't feel part of it. And we wanted to create that feeling. But again, I think we were just hitting notes that uh, we felt would maybe make it a little more palatable to get a distribution deal. Um, and we enjoyed it. We were all young. We were working with young people in New York, just trying out special effects, seeing how it worked. And we were having a kick, you know, it was, <laughs> it was really a lot of fun. The first title was What Do You Want to Do Tonight, which we got from the film Marty uh, with Ernest Borgnine. Um, not that that had anything to do with it other than the boredom um, of, you know, and we translated that boredom to being teenagers in suburbia uh, and that dystopian feeling that you have. And uh, so it was first, What Do You Want to Do Tonight? And all our friends, that we were all hanging out in LA and it was every night, because none of us really held any type of uh, regular jobs. And it was, what do you want to do tonight? I don't know, what do you want to do? So we thought that was a nice play on it. Um, then it was real trouble because that's brought up in dialogue and then hell high. And that also had some influence from the people who brought it out on uh, cassette. That drove theatrical distribution. So there was a, we went back and forth on that. And they were pretty open about it. I mean, I had some really sick ideas, which I won't bring up because we've got cancel culture now putting in front of high school. But uh, we settled on hell high. The film came in for about 750000 
all in. We thought we could do, we thought we could shoot the film for 250,000, 300,000. And that's what we raised initially. It was during a period in the 80s when Wall Street was doing very well. And I was in New York at the time. I had a cousin who was working on Wall Street. She had a lot of connections. And we were able to put a limited liability company together uh, using a lawyer out of, uh, out of LA and uh, just pitching the product, uh, the project to people. We went around and we pitched it. We sold units of $10,000 um, and we were able to raise the 250. Our thought was, and there were a lot of stories also at that time of people who said they were making feature length pictures for 200. They put it on their credit card, you know, that was a good marketing story. So we thought after we got the 250, we'd at least have something in the can and we'd maybe, maybe be able to get a distribution deal and uh, finish it up and do post-production. Well, it went over 250. Um, the shooting alone, I think, came in over five. I mean, if I recall, five, 550, and then there was post-production. We did get help from the lab and we did get help from uh, the post-production facility, Sound One. Um, and they were very good about it because uh, they knew that there was a very good chance they weren't gonna recoup. Uh, but that's, that's how we did it. I mean, and you know, one thing leads to another. That, I mean, I would say if you want to make film or you want to get out there, take uh, Talia Shire's advice. Just do it. Because you start talking to people and they know somebody and you talk to somebody else. And if you're committed and you have the enthusiasm, it's amazing how you can network that. Uh, but you know, you, it's work and you got to really put in the time. Well, they say you're a coward. And they say that I'm a crazy son of a bitch, no good for nothing. Yeah? So what's the point? Well, we have a good time. And we're all rejects from this place. <laughs> all they try and do at this school is mold us into exactly everything that we hate. <laughs> I don't know, Dickens. I heard some pretty strange things about you. We didn't cast any names in it. That was a discussion, too. You know, maybe we should put a name in it. Um, you know, because that's easier to raise money. And we could have, I mean, you can basically get anybody you want if you're willing to pay a certain amount, not, not top, top people. But you know, you'd be surprised at the names if you're willing to throw out 50,000 bucks for a day's work um, or two days in those days or a week. Uh, you could get pretty big names, but we decided not to do that. I was lucky enough uh, through uh, my relationship with Frankie Blondes to hook up with uh, Djamo, Lou Djamo. And uh, he knew a lot of people in New York. Uh, and he, he you know, had access to a lot of young actors. And we, we auditioned. Um, and uh, except for one part, Queenie, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, who I swore I was never going to fall into that trap of casting somebody I was dating or living with, but I did. <laughs> and that, that role was written for her. Um, but yeah, we, we held auditions in New York. Lou brought people in. And, uh, you know, the good, the, when you're going through an audition process, the ones who are good stand out. I mean, we, and we were lucky. We actually found people um, who could do the roles and who were excellent. Hey, hot shot. Did you score? Stryker was a real up-and-coming uh, actor at the time. He was just breaking into film, and we were very lucky, and I knew immediately 
when he read. I mean, there was no doubt he could do it. He was incredibly talented. And I think had he lived, he would have been a very, very uh, big actor. No doubt in my mind. These pet papers, man? File. Maureen had been around. Uh, I think Lou had worked with her on French Connection. She had a very small role. Um, uh, she was the girl on bicycle, I think. Uh, but Maureen and I hit it off. Uh, and, and she was very serious. She took it very seriously when we discussed the role. She wasn't dismissive of it or dismissive of me. Um, and uh, I, I just knew immediately she could pull it off. Uh, and, and talking to Lou, he felt the same way. Does this place scare you? This story has more holes in it than I can count. I don't know. I was down here with this guy once and... What, Smitty? <laughs> he always brings girls down here, gives them that scare shit, to say it's women. You didn't fall for that, did you? Christopher Cousins, I guess, was just breaking in. Um, we had uh, heard of him. Um, I think his agent uh, submitted him. Um, and uh, again, he gave a phenomenal reading, just uh, and and really en encompassed who that character was, and he had a passion for it. And uh, again, I just knew he there was no problem, and his look was perfect. What could go wrong? We got it made. Watch out! Whip it. Jason, we went through a number of different people. Um, it was like, that, that was a hard part to play. Um, it, it was almost cartoonish, and it was meant to be. Um, really, the, th the three, the Dickens, Queenie, and uh, Smiler were all kind of cartoons, uh, or cartoonish in their writing, or what we were trying to portray. Um, so you had to have that element and also be able to get across you're playing a real person. He came in and uh, he did a great job, did a great reading, and I think he did a good job. I've heard since he wasn't happy that he was in the movie, but, you know, <laughs> those are the breaks. But, uh, yeah, he, uh, these, all of them stood head and shoulders above people we read. We got together, I think it was for dinner, and just hit it off immediately. I mean, you know, beyond a director of photography. Oh, we talked films, you know, we talked David Lean movies, we talked, I mean, he had a love of film, um, as did I. Uh, and you don't, you know, that's something you don't meet. I mean, I had worked on films out here in my 20s, and I remember a prop guy saying to me, don't ever lose your love of movies, of going to the movies and loving them from working on them, which is easy to do, especially when you start to know the mechanics behind it. And Steve just, I mean, you know, we just hit it off and uh, we knew we could uh, achieve what we wanted to achieve. Um, and so that's how I met him. You know, again, just you put out the word, you're doing something, and one thing leads to another, and that's how uh, I came to Steve. I'll see you guys tomorrow at the game. Yeah, tomorrow, the football game. Great. I'll need a ride to the game. Sunshine can pick you up tomorrow. Yeah, sure. Good. 
Dickens can tell you how to get to my house. Okay. We had an unrealistic shooting schedule. It was way too quick. Um, we brought everybody up, the entire crew, not the cast, but the crew, up to a house in Rye, New York, which they loved. I mean, it was fun. <laughs> and, we, and it was right on the Long Island Sound. And, you know, it was like a family. And it was, uh, but that didn't work either. Um, it, it, for, I, for many reasons. We couldn't screen the dailies the way we should have screened the dailies. There was no screening facility there. Um, I didn't have an editor on who was actually assembling dailies. Um, and we were just pouring money, pre-production and the beginning of production, we just burned through money. We weren't disciplined. We didn't have somebody overseeing it who really knew what they were doing. Um, so the second time around, we brought, before we shot and got the money, we brought Brooke Kennedy in. And Brooke was in New York at that time, and she did a budget and brought in her accounting, the, the, some woman she was working with with accounting, and really did the books. So we knew where we were. We knew what we had to get. She cleaned up everything. Um, then we went back out and raised the rest of the funding um, and brought in a guy named Mark Slater. Uh, as the production manager, who's doing a lot of, he was young too, and doing a lot of low budget uh, production. And uh, he kind of held us uh, to a schedule that was realistic um, and that we were able to do. Plus, Steve and I talked about how we wanted to shoot it and get it done. And we knew in advance, we didn't storyboard it per se, but we went out to the locations, we took pictures, which I had learned uh, from De Palma. He went out and he, he would shoot. Uh, he'd bring his camera and shoot different angles on the locations. So that was the storyboard. We knew exactly what shots we were going to do. We knew how long it was going to take to set up, and we were able to get the picture done. For the most part, we had permission. Um, some of the stuff that you see on the streets where they're driving, not the crash, of course, we had permission for that. But for the most part, we had permission. Um, we also, the only union on the picture, I think, I, I, you'd have to, I, I, I think it was, I, I don't know if we were using, uh, I, I don't know what the crew, I can't remember what the crew uh, union situation was. I know we were using SAG low budget, but obviously we weren't using Teamster drivers. But I had met uh, through my father who was in construction a top of Teamster official who cleared the way for us to load our equipment and to do all that. Um, and for the most part, the towns, we'd go to the town managers and we'd tell them what we were doing. We'd give them the script. Uh, we did have a little problem with the swamp. And uh, we talked to a town manager who uh, I knew, who was the town manager for the town that abutted where the swamp was. He talked to, so he talked to the town manager and convinced him that we weren't going to damage it. Um, and it was really just before the whole, you know, ecological water table stuff was going on. Um, and we did. We were good. We, we didn't uh, abuse anything. I love camera movement. I always have, and I always felt you could get, if you set the shot up right, 
and you block it out correctly, move the camera. You don't, I don't like, I never liked it when you just stopped and you did coverage, where it was a master shot, going for the two shot, the one shot back and forth. I, you know, that, I didn't want to do that, and it played well for low budget. Uh, but I loved the camera moving. I always did, and Steve and I talked about that. And we were, be, we were able to figure it out. I mean, a lot of those shots weren't on dollies. You know, uh, a lot of the shots uh, were handheld. Um, a lot of the shots were, uh, we figured out a way to do them without, you know, setting up big setups, big long dolly shots. There were dollies used, uh, especially at the house when they're in that yard and going back and forth and things like that. But uh, yeah, I, movement was very, very important to me. Rich McCarr uh, knew some uh, young people, and I think M Murray Barber, who worked with Rich, but it was a young composer, um, and I think he had a partner. Um, I got together with him, Christopher Hyams Hart, I think his name, uh, and uh, we went through a lot of records and sounds and what was I looking for and what was the mood I wanted to set. And he was incredible. I mean, just off of my feedback, he was able to compose a score for it that really worked. He was able to compose, he and his partner composed original songs. We also talked about bringing music in at different beats of the film, like maybe a beat behind or a beat in front, not just typical horror pictures where you get this massive beat on, you know, when it, so you can see it's subtle, but it might be just a little half a beat behind or half a beat after that happens. And we discussed that, but he was great and quick. You know, I mean, these guys were talented. It was unbelievable. And film's collaborative. I mean, you know, and that's what cracks me up when you're, look, granted, a director is the conductor and it's his vision or her vision. Um, but if you can get people to feed into that, who have talent, they take you to a whole nother place. And, and I felt that's what happened on this film. And, and that's what making a movie is so satisfying. When everybody's on the same page and everybody shares in the vision and everybody can contribute. Um, it just makes the experience incredible. The problem is if you're directing and you're producing and you're producing and you're responsible for the money and you went out and raised the money, the directing is going to be sacrificed. Not necessarily the shots, but you're going to take things out of the film that might have added a lot to the film because you know what the budget is. And if you're running behind, instead of having a producer who's there who's ripping pages out, who you can argue with, you're arguing with yourself, and unfortunately, it's a business, and money always wins out. So you do suffer. But I guess I, I, it's, it's a sense of control. I was very lucky to make a film where I had total control over it. And I think that was a problem of why I didn't continue. I continued writing, because writing you could do anywhere. You had an agent, and you... But when you make a movie to have that type of experience at 29 where you control everything I, what a what an incredible feeling and honor 
Um, and I had great people who I was working with, who I felt incredibly comfortable with. And you, know, and you don't overthink it um, at that age. Uh, it's, we're going to make a movie. We're going to have fun. We're going to make a good movie. Um, I've met some people and I like them and uh, they're talented and they, t you know, we're all on the same page. They, so, uh, for me, it was uh, great that way. The scene with the uh, diner uh, was supposed to take place at a famous hot dog stand, um, and uh, we couldn't get permission to shoot. And uh, it was on a very busy street, and it w and it was a small scene. We were also going to do a uh, a locker room scene on a takeoff of Carrie, but it was going to be all guys in there with the coach, you know, who gets uncomfortable anyway. We had to take that out. We just didn't have time. And Christopher Stryker came up with a great idea for the opening over the opening credits to get an idea of who his character was, where he'd be outside his house walking a French poodle, a little miniature French poodle on a leash, yelling up to his mother saying, Mom, he won't go. He won't go. And the mother screaming down, You can't come in until he goes. You make him go, Dickens. You make him go. Uh, that would have been great, but uh, we didn't have time to do it, and it was a great, great suggestion. Oh, shit. That's what I call a fun shh, don't blow it. Shit. That dirty bitch. We always knew with Maureen she was pregnant when she came back, so we knew we weren't going to use Maureen for that. So we had a body double. Uh, the scene where the uh, quarterback's girlfriend gets her skirt pulled off. The actress was uncomfortable because she wasn't wearing stockings and she just felt uncomfortable. She came to me before the scene and uh, asked if she could wear stockings. So we improvised it. We had her wear stockings and she felt more comfortable. You know, we, we pulled off some, what we felt were big stunts. I mean, going through the window, that was a big thing. Everybody's, everybody's girlfriend, boyfriend on the cast and crew were there to see that. Uh, having the motorcycle explode. We had a fire department there, or a couple of trucks. They all got drunk and weren't ready to put the fire out. And that was a, you know, a huge thing. And it was like, you've, you're, you've been here all night for that. That was a problem. Of course, running out of money and thinking, I'm never going to get anybody back. And then finding out one of your main characters is pregnant. Uh, and how are we going to get around that? Though Maureen was great and totally game for it. And all those things where she had the slime poured on her and that she was pregnant. Um, so, uh, you know, she, she really stepped up to the plate and told me, I'll come back. Don't worry about it. She called uh, while we were trying to raise money and said, Look, I don't want to freak you out, but I'm pregnant. You know. But you know, there's a thousand different decisions you've got to make every day. But that's what makes you feel alive when you're making a movie. It's great. It's all going through you, and you're making decisions. We had some completed scenes that could be put together. 
but we didn't have a lot. No, there was no way I was going to walk away from this and not get it done. Because we had investors, you know. That's another thing. You, you know, you, you've got to... I think if you're sociopathic, it's much easier to raise money and don't, you don't feel anything for the people who are putting the money in. You know, you hear those Kubrick stories, how he went to England because he couldn't come back because <laughs> he, you know, he had screwed his investors. Um, you get to know your investors. They're calling you, you know, it's, and I had to go out and raise more money. So no, I, I was going to finish the picture. There was no doubt in my mind. Making the movie was incredibly positive. There was never really a problem. Everybody acted professionally, even with all the obstacles that were thrown in everybody's way. The only time we ran into trouble with the actors was when we were on that roof and they were jumping up and down and making noise and Smiler was supposed to fall off. And we felt he could jump, and it was like, what are you, out of your mind? <laughs> and the other actors were, you're crazy, but we weren't gonna do it with stunt people. We were gonna do it with the actors, and they said, I'll break my leg. You know, I'll break my arm, or the worst, I'll sprain my ankle, I'm not, I'm not gonna do it. And I remember feeling like, oh God, you know. So we had to do it the way we did it, and it was kind of a cheat. And, you know, I didn't think it, it didn't fit my vision, but you learn very quickly as you're making the movie. There's a lot of compromises you have to make. What I remember as negative is when you're then trying to sell the movie and you get to the business side. That's negative. That's tough. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's a business. Um, and uh, that takes a lot of effort. And you've got to find people who share... Now, I don't think they necessarily have to share your vision. They have to share that it fits somewhere or they can make some money off of it. And it might be different. I mean, we went through a lot of different people. Uh, we went through the Weinsteins. The Weinsteins had us uh, for lunch, Bob and his brother. And uh, they had an idea of how they were going to market the picture. And basically, they were going to piggyback two other films on it. They loved the movie, which was great. They got it. They got, I mean, Harvey was telling me scenes that he liked, you know, in it. And so I knew he had watched it and stuff, but he wanted to piggyback other things on it. Um, so we had gone through all that. And who do you pick? Who don't you pick? Who wants you? Who doesn't want you? Um, so we were, uh, that, that's, that's the hard part of making a film. Making the film, beautiful. Selling the film and getting somebody to commit to getting it distributed. That, that's, that's a challenge. We wanted an R-rated. Uh, I know when it was done overseas uh, for foreign distribution, we had trouble in Scandinavia. You know, they were fine with nudity and everything, but they felt this was too violent. So I know we, I, I believe there were some cuts. We made some cuts for foreign distribution. And uh, in the Mideast, we did some stuff. Um, but we were going for an R. Um, we were never, I, I think there was one point where we were told it might be an X and it was like, what are you, out of your mind? Nothing, 
And it was more the violence. And But we brought up other, you know, you go in, you say, well, what about these 10 films? You didn't give them an X. I, I don't know what the, the board was thinking, the MPAA, uh, if it was just, we'll take advantage of somebody or... I have no idea, but we came in and we took care of that quickly. So, so it was always aimed at an R rating. We'd had Castle Hill, uh, Julian Schlossberg, who did a lot of uh, John Cassavetti stuff, again, that I really respected, but he had a different division, you know, that, uh, and Mel Marin oversaw that. Um, they were pretty good, though Mel was older and uh, MTV was getting popular at the time. And I said, you know, we should advertise on uh, MTV. And he said, no, nobody advertises on MTV. Then, you know, two years later, everybody advertised on MTV. Uh, but he was an old hand. Um, he knew the movie theater owners. Um, he did what he said he was going to do. I wanted theatrical distribution. I wanted it in the movie theaters. Um, and and he, he delivered on it. Um, he did a pretty good marketing campaign. Uh, but again, that was driven more by the video company. Uh, they were much more involved. But they, they included me in it. I mean, I knew they had final say, but they didn't demand any cuts, nothing like that. They liked the film. Uh, they put some money into marketing. Um, and uh, they always ran things by me. The marketing was bare bones, but there was marketing. So I was happy that there was actual marketing. And I was happy I had a voice. Not the final voice, but I had a voice. If you think these kids are a problem during the day, you should see them after school. I was kind of shell-shocked after the business side and trying to get this film released for basically three years that I got great feedback from everybody I showed it to, and, but I wasn't willing to go back out to Los Angeles where I had lived. And I had met this girl, <laughs> and who's now my wife, and I was gonna stay back in New York. And it was, it, I came to this crossroads of, is this something you really wanna do? Do you want, because I knew if I wanted control it was going to be on the independent film side. And that meant years of getting financing and developing a project and getting it out. And chances are not making much money. Um, because what I was seeing was like the Coen brothers had come out and Steven Soderbergh. And I mean, they made great, those were two great films. Um, but you watched Hollywood kind of co-opt them. Um, I, I don't know if they'd agree with that, but you know, you go into the machine. And so it was, is this really a career? Yeah, it was a very weird feeling. Um, and I'd met a lot of scumbags, uh, you know, in the business. And it was like, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to be married and dealing with this. And um, so, yeah, I got, there were people who liked it. I got a bounce off of it more so for my writing because that's the way I was going. Um, I think if I had committed myself to it and said this is what I want to do and had a clearer idea of how I was going to go about it, I could have done something with it. But I had done what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a movie 
I made the movie. I got it released. I got it in the movie theaters. People could rent it. Um, I got feedback, some negative, some very good. So I was satisfied. And uh, I kind of just, you know, was in that drifting stage. I was 30 and, you know, it was kind of a crossroads. And I just, I just didn't feel I could commit uh, the way you need to commit to do it. Making the movie, best experience of my life. Loved it. Fantastic. But that isn't what it's about. There's a lot more that comes with it. And, you know, you've got to be able to be somebody who commits to that, has a personality that could do it, who can give up a certain amount of control. Because of Frankie Blondes, he had brought me out uh, when I was in high school, 16 and 17, to work on, like, Mission Impossible, The Brady Bunch, that stuff. So I had been doing this for a long, you know, a while. I went to film school. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't something like I'd gone to film school, gotten out, written a script and did this. I had been involved with it. I was very lucky. I knew what sets were like. I knew what the business was like. I was being pushed more in a direction just because, you know, you come from a middle class background of, well, why don't you go become a studio head, you know, instead of a director? Um, I remember interviewing with Mel Brooks to be his assistant. And his thing was, you know, what do you want to be? I want to be a director, writer. And he said, well, that's a matter of talent. You know, you either have the talent or you don't have the talent. But I'm looking for a, uh, an assistant and maybe that, you know, will lead you into a studio role and eventually, you know, and I, and I knew I didn't want that. So, you know, it takes a certain personality to do it. And that gets back into being a producer and a director at the same time. Because as a director, it's your baby. If you're a producer and you're separated, you do see it as a product and you're willing to go out there. You're the director producer. It can hurt your feelings, you know, and they're doing it. You're negotiating with somebody. So, you know, they're going to put put it down and devalue it so they can get it for, you know, less. <laughs> so it's a process. I think uh, casting, uh, we nailed it. I think uh, the crew uh, getting Steven. Uh, Steve Fearberg was definitely a huge positive. Um, I think not being prepared the way we should have been prepared when we went into it um, was a problem, but we were very lucky that we were able to match everything up um, with what we had shot the year before. Um, but, you know, overall, when I look at the film, was it the exact vision I had in my head? No. I mean, there were huge limitations with budget and things like that. And just the time we made the film. I mean, there's been so many advancements. Um, I, I, I was talking to Steve about when the little girl walks. I wanted to saturate that, saturate colors, kind of like what they did in CSI Miami. And, they, you know, all, all of a sudden a lab or a special effects company came up and was able to do it. And that's what I was looking for. So there were things like that, that, you know, I could, I just, we couldn't do it. We're sitting in the lab and I kept saying, can't we push it? Can't we push it? The, you know, the timer's getting more and more angry. Steve's trying to act as an intermediary, you know, but, uh, and so what I did right was I assembled a cast and crew that really pulled something off that not everybody can do. Um, and I'm proud of that. 
And you know, here's the funny thing is, if I thought about that and really thought about it and was honest with myself, I wouldn't have started the production. So it never would have even gone anywhere. So starting the production and getting a couple of weeks worth or 12 days or 10 days worth of stuff, I at least had something. So I had something to go out with to raise money. So it, in a way, it was thought out. It was like, I'm just going to, I knew in the back of my mind we didn't, we weren't fully financed. But I wasn't going to tell everybody. I assembled everybody. So it was like, let's go out and we'll see what we can do, you know. And then by doing that, I got the ball rolling. And I was really lucky. There's going to be big trouble if you don't turn your head in this direction. I said eyes to me. I went out of my way not to be found. I didn't do things. I didn't when, you know, if I was called up to go talk about the film or I just rejected it. I was like putting in my rear view mirror. I don't know why, I just, you know. Now I embrace it. Uh, I'm happy we're doing this. It's very nice, but that's, you know, years later. Um, and I've had people contact me about re-releasing it or whatever. And it was like, no, I'm doing fine. I, you know, and I don't really have any intention. So just, uh, it's funny because right before Ewan called me, it was like I called up one of my writing partners and said, you know, maybe we should try to raise money and do another film. Uh, so it's always there in the back of your head, which cracks me up. Uh, but uh, no, I never really engaged uh, with anybody. I pretty much shut it down. Um, and it was before social media. You know, uh, it was 89. So social media, I had 11, 12, 13 years before. But I go online occasionally and I'll see a, a bunch of stuff on YouTube and people have cut the, you know, the movie or done a trailer themselves to music. And I get a kick out of that, you know, that's neat. And uh, that it still stayed, you know, relevant for this long. I mean, I'm amazed so, and happy. Nice to see you after How are you? 35 years. Nice to see you too. So I got there because, you know, as a player, I wanted to check in somewhere where I could work in the day, play at night. And then uh, I started to do these uh, scores for modern dance. And you played wins. Yeah. But I, so do these modern dance scores and uh, a lot of sound involved, but not... Not, you know, not digital sound. These were these were actually tape sounds, recording sounds, mixtapes. You know, we used to take two reel-to-reels uh, -reels and loop them together and play them simultaneously so you get, you know, echo. Sure. So all the, all the ways to make physical tape sound like digital stuff. And uh, somebody heard one of the sounds. I did a score for North Carolina Symphony and had some tape and some music and all that stuff in there. And a the sound editor heard it and said, can you do that for film? And I, you know, my reaction was, of course, you know, like, and then I talked to you and said, 
could you think of some way to actually do this for a movie? Because uh-huh. I had never done a film before, that kind of thing before. And you were like, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> like, you've got all these stuff can do that. And, and I think you didn't know how to do it either when we started. And that was, uh, that, that was the first hire, right? First job. When I spoke to you, I knew about my brother had a Sinclair. And the Sinclair was the first sampler uh, invented and it did 100K sampling. And I knew it could do things. So when you had asked me about that, I had talked to my brother and said, look, do you think we could do this? Then one thing led to another. The, the connection here is that Greg Sheldon was the sound supervisor on Maximum Overdrive, but he was the actual picture editor of this movie. We were sitting in the back and being to New York and not familiar with all the editors and who they were. And I won't even mention there were very, very Academy Award winning film editors editing our tracks. I won't say who it is, but they are very famous right now. And they were editing, they were looking at us and every time our our sounds would come up, Stephen King would say, more Sinclair, more Sinclair. And the editors, all their tracks were going down, down, down. And all our tracks were going up, up, up. Yeah. That was the first time in Maximum Overdrive that, that what we determined what we were really gonna do, once we went in there and tried to figure out how to do it, and we thought it what we realized our original concept wasn't gonna work. Yeah. Then we discovered that one editor was gonna do truck premixes and we were gonna give an animal sound to each truck. And then we were gonna <laughs> say this was a tiger. And when the truck was idling, it was purring, and when yeah. it would when it would rev, it would bite, growl, and when it would hit a truck, it would bite. And so Greg already had all that in mind. So when it came to this film, he was hoping to continue this yeah. journey. What could you do with this film? And we wanted to keep in sync with the idea of like, we want sound, we want a sort of hyper-real sound. Remember that whole conversation, the idea of a hyper-real sound with, you have a sound of a door opening, can you add something to the sound, look at the door opening's demographic chart, and then match a sound like that, blend it in and have it be shockingly real. So can we make something like a car crash or, or a door opening or you know somebody dropping something like this dramatic, exciting moment? And we're like, yeah, sure, we can do that. We'll find sounds and match them. And, yeah. I mean, we were just doing whatever sounded good and it was really cool and it was fun. And we were being intelligent about it as far as being logical about it yeah. and what we thought we could do. I liked that. Ex- and I thought about that expression a couple of times, the hyper-real sound, like the, the idea of hyper-real, like yeah. making, it, making it better than natural. Because you end up seeing like a lot of films nowadays, the sound isn't, you know, obviously the gunshot is not really a gunshot. Yeah. You know, it's put on later and it's made bigger and more explosive. And you look at the Matrix and every sound in that is like perfectly articulated, loud, clear. It's not real. It's got nothing to do with real sound. And the thing about it that really, to me, was engaging, like this film, like all film, is that that, that, that how does the music sit in the space, right? Yeah. That becomes what you really are, are thinking about. <clears throat> difference between music composing and just writing is like, how's it, how's it feel in that space on screen? And also wherever you're watching it, in your space, because remember we talked about like, mixing for the headphones in the car versus mixing for the house. There's, like, where, where is this going to be seen? And when I watched the film again, after all these years, there's a lot of stuff that we did that people wouldn't even necessarily know that are just weird sounds. One of the things uh, on both Maximum Overdrive and on, on this was the sense that you wanted the sounds organic. You wanted them to be natural to the piece, right? Like the, you, you don't yeah. want the sound to step out like, oh, it's a synthesizer, or oh, it's a, you want it to be part of it. And the idea is to use uh, some sort of aesthetic and one of the things is, the, like you say, is is the voicing you're going to do natural? 
Like, is it something people are, or is it going to stand out so much that people go, what is that? Like, you don't want the music to trigger a what is that kind of thing. You want the sounds to trigger that. I used to tell people all the time, you know, uh, music is not sound. And they would say, what do you mean? What do you mean music isn't sound? Even to this day, I can tell people, and they'll say, what do you mean? There's a difference. And also, when you blend the two together, you create something that's completely organically new. And then this whole thing, the success of it is boils down to, is it real? And it's all fake. But when people watch mm -hmm. the movie, it's real to them. People just start to accept they're watching a movie and they're going to go into that world. Do you remember the discussion, like there's a scene, uh, some woman's showering and, uh, and we had this long discussion of like, well, should we do like burlesque? Do we do like horn section? Do we do like the saxophone thingy? Yeah. Do, like how do we score this so it's not horribly embarrassing and at the same time is still somewhat interesting or intriguing or sen you know, sensuous, but not to the point where it's going to be embarrassing for us to watch later. Because there there's that whole scene is sort of, it's you know meant to be sexy, but you know, your music could just overplay that. So I think we went very subtle, just kept the drums in, kept the, the rhythm section kind of going and tried to do very little uh, to insinuate, you know, sensuality in the music because the woman's getting undressed showering. We're trying to score like we'd score something that was an emotionally impactful movie. And like, it's not an emotionally impactful film, but we wanted to bring an aesthetic to it that was like, you know, this is, there's, there's something more here than just somebody stabbing somebody with a pencil in the head. Yeah. We are sitting there, we're watching this thing, you know, hundreds of times. You, you got you to gotta try to give it more. You know? well, I think we also, we also kind of created like a certain like band for it. And because you were so good at the thematic part, you could pick different things. And because Doug wanted the nursery rhyme type thing, oh, we could right. stay to the three, four meter and we could stay towards that. And even when we did, it was a six, eight meter when we went fast. So we stayed to this um pa pa um pa pa yeah. feel, which to me kind of rhythmically becomes a theme. Yeah, but you did a bass line in that beginning part that was really sweet and that made it sound like uh, it drove it, right? Instead of being this sort of uh, the, 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 the waltzy feeling, you actually gave it a little undercurrent that made a little, I think it adds the tension, the titles part, when that kicks in, you're sort of like, oh, this is gonna this is gonna move a little more than this. Like, yeah, it's nice to hear the children's thing and have this kind of floating world, but to also have something driving underneath give this sense of like, hey, something's gonna happen. I think we've talked a lot about when you score the film, you try to decide whether or not the people in the film are experiencing the music, or whether the music is the environment they're in, mm -hmm. or is the music something that is actually above it all and it's just between us and the audience. And it's like, well, sometimes you want it to land like that, that these people are kind of driven by it. And I think that the drums and the rhythm did a lot of that to, to give that sense of emotion to it, you know? Most people go to rock as opposed to jazz when it comes to a horror film, but it was pretty jazzy because that's your, that's your background, that's my background, yeah. and that's where we went, and the director said, I love it. I remember looking up uh, early piano pieces, like, you know, the ragtime pieces, thing. like, this do, this do the ragtime thing throughout, and it was like, no. <laughs> it started like it started with some of that and it was like no that, that is just not gonna play you never should have come back i didn't want you to come back 
I want you to go away. I want you to go away forever. Well, you know, I think there were some scenes, and I remember watching the movie now, and I and there were a couple. I wish I could just point them out, and, and where they were walking, like in the in the swamp, when they first got to the swamp the first time. Of course, it had to be swamp, right? But I remember you were the one that did a lot of those things because you played them, and I would say, okay, that was cool, and then I'd put a bling, or I'd go, that was cool. I feel your sax playing or your thing, and then they go, and then stuff like that. So it was like. So, so in the end, there was this, this like, or this like new music thing that was never written down. That was just ad lib. I thought it, uh, I thought it was funny listening, watching the film, thirty years later. I could just like, I, all I could think of was like, oh my god, that's rich. <laughs> like that, some of the drum stuff would kick in. You had a great commercial sound. It was just yeah. like on the metronome, on the beat. It was perfect, and then it would disappear and break into like these little sound effect things that were like little cues. And the, the little whispered voices coming in. Yeah. I think those are great. Yeah. I think the way they come in is like really what you would expect today when you think you and I back thirty some years ago. I mean, yeah. you it's, can't you can't make this stuff up, and you can't imagine where we are now. And even though where I am now, I feel the same as I did then. I still you, you, love you doing what too. I love. I, I still want to do it. I still enjoy doing it, whether I get paid for it or not. Dale Getting an idea. Praise the Lord. I don't remember how the songs came about. Like the score parts I got, but how, how did I the songs I remember the songs. Uh, Murray, Barber, I think I have that right. Uh, was the producer of the songs, and he had some artists that he was working with to do the songs. But because we were doing such current sound, he asked me to do drum tracks for the songs, yeah. and I would do drum tracks for the songs, and then he would take them off to the studio, and they would do the tracks in the studio, and then they would come back. It's funny when I was listening, the thing that kept coming to mind was that we used your drum sounds and the Sinclair sounds throughout. And they went under the songs too. And how often do you have films that have the same, the, the songs like that are meant to be the pop song in the movie have the same instrumentation as the rest of the film? You know, I didn't think about that. The, you're, you're right. I didn't the, notice that. that. That was really weird. It's like, well, wait, you got a drum sound through the intro that goes under the song for the pop song with the kids singing. It's like, yeah. And then it's like, yeah, you 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 were you were farmed out to actually do that part as well as the, the regular part. I also think he was hoping some of the songs would be like pop songs, like they'd be pulled out and they'd be hit songs on their own and that it's been off. And, and I actually need to go back and listen to the songs again to see if any of them have that sort of, you know, pop tender. George Benson come out, John Zorn had come out, and those were big influences when listening to the sort of the noise set of like Zorn and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But you're right, it was like Madonna and Genesis and those bands. So you can see that influence in some of the songs and then in some of the score we tried to put. We, yeah, like Take Me Home, that yeah. one song, Take Me Home. I mean, that's definitely a Genesis thing. Yeah. 
I seem to remember there was something that you and I did not want to do the opening of the movie with the waltz. I, I remember them wanting that being in there and also the whole beginning with the like the kid throwing this that whole opening has got such so many questions too, like how this kid gets so angry. Why is this kid suddenly you know trying to kill a motorcycle driver? I mean there's all this like yeah, yeah pretty hostile moment. But you there. ended up using that theme later on because you were trying to tie it in. Yeah. I, and I, I remember we weren't so thrilled about it, but the director said, This is going in, I love this. And you can't argue with the director. Well, that, that's one and two is if you introduce something like that, you know, you got to use it. You can't, you can't just say, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to have a piece of music somewhere that is totally irrelevant to the rest of the film if you don't pick it up and make it Please. like, I wanted it to be like the murderer's theme or so. Like, do it, with, do something with it that makes it more than just something through in at the beginning because somebody thought it was cool. I think in looking at it, it's kind of like, it's almost monochromatic in a certain regard, but in some mm -hmm. regard, it actually kept a consistent style throughout, which Doug, let us do, and I guess the overall excitement of just, this was new sound. Mm. These were things that people were very in front and center. Only the best people had those sounds. It's easy to forget, why did that waltz work? Because we were using sampled voices. It was sampled voices that were playing that. Now we take all that for granted now because we hear sampled voices till we're blue in the face all the time. But yeah. at the time, sampled voices was like a big deal. It was so much fun when that first came out and sitting sitting on the Sinclair and saying like, there's a choir a here. A choir, <laughs> like, and you yeah. Could, you could you tell could it, <laughs> it was just there like- they are, oh, it was like you're I, entering the gates of heaven. And then when you started like, you know, if you press hard, you get the, the overtones in the voice because there was a sample on the overtone, a sample yeah. on the midtone, sample on the, and so three or four samples compiled on one key press and you could ride that. Because I think you played the opening. I, I liked that, that the, the, all the voices that you had in that. In the film, uh, the little girl's voice? Yes. Like, I, I remember being, I remember recording somebody, I, I, I think they were like probably middle-aged, like the woman that did the voice was not a little girl. Uh, and didn't you, you had to do something, for, I remember you taking hours of trying to get that voice to sound right. If you think about nowadays, everything's sampled. Yeah. And yeah. in the day, we were trying to sample a voice and we wanted to make it sound creepy. We wanted to do this, and it's like, you could do that like in 30 seconds yeah. right now. And we were doing all this stuff to try to be able to do this voice, this creepy voice. And it actually turned out pretty good. There wasn't multi-tracks. So we realized we weren't gonna be able to take all this to a studio and mix it. And that's where Greg got Peter Wagoner yeah. to do the mix. And Peter's gone on to mix, you know, Emmy award-winning movies like crazy. And he had to add reverb or the director and he win the mix and they were mixing because we were busy with other things. We weren't in there on all the mix. Yeah. And Peter was just trying to get the film done. And he was working with Greg and they would just take our tracks and add reverb and do stuff to it. And really, you got to give a hand to Greg yeah. because he took all this massive amount of material and kind of made it all edit together because we couldn't play from beginning to the end. The music is so high in the in the in the tracks. Yeah. Like when you watch this film, you're like, why is the music so loud through all these sections of dialogue? And it's like it's it's the it is a it's an odd film mix in that way. Well, it was very forward thinking. When you think about it, Greg is in Florida now. I tried to get him in on this, mm. but but Greg was already thinking ahead of the game because 
back in the day, you did not have wall-to-wall -wall music, but nowadays you do have wall-to-wall -wall music. And this film done 33 years ago was wall-to-wall -wall music. File. Did you say file? File. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> They're file. That doesn't finish it, not by a long shot. We bought that Winchester drive, which was really, it was it was huge. And I yeah, think it was it, that I, big too. I think it weighed like 35, 40 pounds. Maybe. Oh, it was massive. And it was like, it was thousands, five, five ten thousand dollars something like that, for five megabytes. Which to us was like, oh, we could have the we could have the piano and the strings on the Sinclair at the same time, which was it used well, to be one. Well, that's thanks to my brother. Really, Lex was able to maneuver this finances of this thing, because yeah. even when we did Maximum Overdrive, I think it was twenty seven thousand dollars for eight, 16 voices. Yeah, which was well, it was massive. And it, it's interesting to think that we relied on one one device, right? The Sinclair the one device for the whole series we were doing almost for the whole film and, and nowadays you think like well you've got 45 samplers three simple you know you like the amount of technology you would pour on and when we did it there was no midi right there's no. no, nothing to sync to there was no sync concept nope. there was no connecting this to that so that they both ran it, it, i remember having to play things over and over again because mm. of the arpeggiation you had to you yeah, had to, to perform it. it yeah which was awkward i mean i was not I was not a great keyboardist. You weren't a great keyboardist. We were trying to use other tools, playing the playing the Sinclair all the time. Wow. Now, you remember where we were working on this film? We, we, we had rented a different room in the Brill Building, uh, and it was part with Howard Shore. Yeah, who is phenomenal. Gone on to be yeah, world famous. Uh, just a and great composer. If you hear his stuff, his stuff is, is super, phenomenal. Super, super yeah. great. And he was always curious as to what we were doing. So we would see him and talk to him and he would hear yeah. things and we would hear things. And he had a Sinclair too and he had a guy. And when we worked there, then after this, I'm, I think it was, well, it must have been before, but maybe it was at some point that same room I did, uh, was uh, contacted by Coppola, who was working on Peggy right. Sue Got Married. And that's where I created the music box by going back and forth from Clinton and creating a music box sample and ended up playing that and ended up getting into the movie there after that. And then from going over to Clinton and back and forth and stuff, it was inevitable that I was gonna work in studios. And I remember getting a job at Eastside Studio and on the first day I was there, they said I couldn't do the job so fast. Sinclair was so fast. And they said, no, so they the client booked all day oh, and you have hour. to come. I have to slow down because you're done in three hours. And I said, why not? We're just We're done. We're done. We did great. They're thrilled. They're rocking out, thrilled and excited. He said, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't do that. And I said, well, if you're going to make me do that. I don't know. I'm not going to make coffee for them. And then I, I left and I realized I had to form my own company. Hmm. And that was, I tell my wife, I have no choice. I can't work for somebody else. I'm going to have to form my own company. And that's what I did, form buttons. Well, if you tie that back to the way it was when we were working on this movie with this box that ended, ended up, people ended up buying into the whole digital thing. It was so fresh and it was so new. We were just seeing what we could do with what we had. And what we had was so good that we could do a lot with a little. 
as time went by and as the capacities increased, now they do hundreds of tracks of articulate things that are based on this whole hyper-real thing because we did it in this movie just because it felt natural, and especially because we were in that mind from working on maximum overdrive. And we were doing things that today would be simple. Now, I wasn't there, but... uh, uh uh, through all the mixes, but I remember going in one of the boards that had one of the new uh, mixing boards that was dynamic. Like you would actually set the sound, uh-huh. run it through once, and the next time through, the, the faders would uh, match to your performance. Yes. So you would perform the mix. And that was the first time I saw that, and I thought, that that is huge time saver. Because we used to have to sit and perform the mix as it went through, because we were mixing on all 16 down to one track, one set of yeah. tracks. And you, every mix would be a performance. You'd have to remember, you know, take that down, take that down. And we would take tape and put it on there and put little marks. You slide it up, slide it down. Memorize it. You memorize the performance. Whereas now, you know, these things, these faders move. They just move. Yeah. You just touch them and move them, and they just remember it all. So the uh, the mix was almost a performance in the same way as the the music was because you had to remember like it's really loud when it starts and then you need to pull it down you need to push it back up when the car comes by you remember you have to pull all the faders up it's like and you you would be telling me remember to put those four up when this happens and yeah it's like because you needed more hands yeah and 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 that's a credit to Peter Wagner for mixing the film because he did a lot more mixing than just mixing. He was creating some sounds and adding reverbs and doing stuff as well. And Greg Sheldon taking our tracks and editing them in a way that would work because he was such a good editor and he happened to do the picture editing too. You know, when I watched mm-hmm. the movie after seeing so many movies and I just recently did a, another horror movie and I think we had at least 150 tracks. And when I thought about what I did now, just only a matter of a month ago with the movie that's soon to be released, Everything's loud, so it made me think of the things that we've done. And then when I watched this movie, I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? We were at a place where it was very interesting at the time, and we didn't know it. I think what we knew was this is something that is really attractive. Like, we, we need to stay close to this because it is really, it's exciting. It was exciting then. It's like, I yeah. can't believe the things this can do. And we were both just sort of like, well, there's, there's, there's stuff, money, and excitement, and creativity, yeah. and all this stuff about to happen with this stuff. And, you know, 10 years before this, we would have gone in and we would have sat down with, with the crew and give them the, the chart and say, just play this. And then we would mix the five of them. We'd have the same sound. So it's like, is there, what's the difference in the, in, in our intent? You know, like, is invite and having all the musicians play it and get the same thing or doing it on the synth, uh, just with the synclavier. It was that excitement of like, we, we can just do it ourselves. It's like, we can really do this. I don't have to yell at somebody to do it. I can just do it myself. And even if I can't do it well, I can fix what I did and make it into what I wanted in the first place. And no writing. There, there. You look much better. Oh, here, here. Take this. It's going to calm you down enough to get you through the night. Oh, don't worry. It's not going to hurt you. It's just a quaalude. Kids take them all the time. Nowadays, people want to do things that you and I were doing 30 years ago. They don't want to just sit on the keyboard. They want to manipulate the sound. So yeah. They do it through the plugins. Then they do the plugins and they screw it all up. And it creates this new weird sound. And that's what they like. So in, in, in some regards, 
they're trying to redo things that are in the analog world that, that we were doing because of the instruments that we had, but they're doing them in different ways. In other words, they don't mm. just want to play the keyboard. They don't just want the note and then they, you know, they want a sound or something like that. Mm. They want to take that and redo it, let it like create something new. So uh, I think there's always that thirst to come up with some sound that nobody ever heard before or some combination of something. And I think it all roots back in the days, transition from analog to digital. The point is to do something really interesting, something that you can really feel is yours and you can take ownership of. Even all the films that I've mixed and all the films that I've done sound for, the whole point was what beach sound really works here, what internal sound really works here, what what really achieves this arc or what have you, which is where we always yeah. connected from all the things that we did together yeah, for yeah. a long time. Yeah, those, those were, that, was, that was a fun period. Yes, it was. So... Nice to see you. Nice to see you too after later. all these years. I know. Can you yeah. believe it? I, I can't. Well, and that we both don't look any older is great. I know. That yeah. part's good too, right? Yeah. Me, yeah music, <laughs> music keeps you looking young, you know? It's, uh, <laughs> well, you just don't have time to think about getting old. Yeah. True. What's the point? It's just age. <laughs> She's had enough. I said I'm gonna finish it's it. It's no good, man. What do you owe her? There are limits. There's certain laws we can't break. This is real trouble, real jail, a future. You're just a coward. Maybe so. I didn't hear about the film. I remember we saw a screening of the film after we finished it, or kind of a rough cut or something. I don't even know if I saw ever saw a finished cut. Champ is tiring. Years later, Someone said, oh, there's this movie out called Hell High. You, and I was like, hell, I never did a movie called Hell High. That's not me. And so then I looked at it, and I was like, oh, that, that is me. I thought that movie was never going to be seen, to be honest with you. <laughs> Savage! There went my future. Just moved to New York. I was, I, I guess, 23 or something. So, uh, yeah, the dream is you're gonna, you're gonna be a lead in a movie. And Lou DiGiamo was casting this. So Lou DiGiamo was a huge casting director at the time. He'd done The Godfather and, I mean, lots of major films. <laughs> this was a different kind of movie than what Lou DiGiamo was doing usually. And this is not a kind of movie he'd usually audition, you know, cast for. So. That elevated it in, in, in 
our minds and my agents in my minds. Yeah, so that's how we got involved. At the time, horror movies were huge, and I grew up in the 70s in Oklahoma where we went to go see horror movies in the drive-in. And that kind of schlock horror was kind of a, it was a fun thing. And when we, uh, when I read the script and, and the way Lou was pushing it, and, and then later on I talked to Doug, I think in the final audition, and um, the idea was that it would be a satire on these kind of movies, that we'd be satirizing uh, uh, these movies. I don't think we quite made it to the satire. <laughs> But we, that was the intent. It was to be satirical. Great idea. We're not out of here yet. What could go wrong? We've got it made. Watch out. I remember when I first received the audition, the film was called What Do You Want to Do Tonight? Which again, to me, that lended to this idea of just idle kids getting into trouble and stumbling into this horror movie, basically, was what they're doing. And that would have been, to me, the the thing is that they're normal children and normal teenagers and because they step into Maureen Mooney's life then they enter into a horror movie which is what I think could have been the best part of that thing but that's what, anyway that was the ideas I don't know I don't I don't know that that <laughs> they succeeded in achieving that goal if that was in fact the goal maybe I'm remembering things to rationalize in my mind looking back in time too you know Memory is a funny thing. I'll be glad when I get out of here. Move west, make some money, maybe check out college. Yeah, I hear you. It was in the fall. I remember it was freezing. We were up in a... <laughs> we were up in a, a preserve in upstate New York, and... Uh, we were surrounded by killer raccoons who invaded our camp every day and who eventually we literally stayed in our trailers because they would just take over the food the, the food table. We put in a cage, right? The, the guys, the forest service guys came in, put in a cage. The, the raccoons walk up, they look at the cage. Hmm. The other guy walks up, holds up the door. The other guy goes in and gets the food. The other guy closes the door. That was it. They solved the problem. They solved the cage faster than I could. So it was crazy. We were, it was of course working, you know, 24 hour shoots. It, you know, it was, it was a fun thing. The last day of the shoot was 72 hours straight. <laughs> I go back, we go back to New York. They take us in a bus or something. I had one margarita. And in those days I drank a lot. So one margarita was like, it was like nothing to me, but I was so tired. I passed out in the taxi cab going home to Brooklyn. The guy apparently didn't touch me waking me up. So I wake up in a police car like going, what the fuck's going on? Oh, sorry, but what the heck's going on? And, uh, and uh, the guy says, you didn't pay for your cab fare. And I was like, well, the first director takes care of that. I'm not, what are we, are we? Because I'd just been arrested in the movie. So I thought I was in the movie still. So I was like, wait a minute, what's going on? Where am I going? And I was like doing this scene almost. And, and I wasn't even drunk, I swear to God. I was like just sleep deprived out of it. And uh, the guy said, the cop said, you know, I said, well, I'll pay the guy now. I have the money. What do you, I just obviously was not awake or something. And they said, it's too late. We'll process. And it took no time. They processed me and got me right out. But, you know, the guy said to me, I just want you to know I did not touch you when I tried to wake you up. Like, that was a good thing. I was like, dude, if you just shook me a little bit, I could have paid you and you would have lost, you lost your whole money. 
your whole morning. Anyway, we were young and, and uh, the four of us, Millie, Chris, and Jason, and I were like, you know, a little group of people and Victoria when she was there. And later on, we all became very close uh, after the film. Chris Stryker, you know, I don't know if you guys have talked about this, but he and I got very close. Then all of a sudden he disappeared. And I, he wouldn't, I couldn't get a hold of him. I didn't know what was going on. Fine, and I knew Victoria. She plays the, the cheerleader of my girlfriend in there. And um, she called me and said, Chris wants to see you, you know. And, and so I went and I found out he was in the hospital. And, uh, you know, he was dying of AIDS. He was 27 and it looked like he was 65 and it was just horrifying. So, I mean, I, it sort of makes me sad. I see this sassy, young, brash person and, you know, to have died so young, it's just heartbreaking. Also, the other thing I have to say is in this film, and he and I discussed this a lot, was there's a lot of homophobic language in the play and Chris was gay. Football's for queers. He and I talked about it a lot. I mean, we talked about, you know, calling everybody queers and, and we even talked about trying to tone it down and, but he felt like he needed to do that. I don't know, Dickens, I heard some pretty strange things about you. You look what they say about you. Look, we have a good time. Prove it to those jerk-off football players that you don't need that kind. When I watched the movie, watching Chris Stryker play Dickens, it was odd because he's nothing like Dickens. So part of me is like, I hope, I don't want people to think of him this way, you know. He was sensitive, loving, funny, witty, and you know, he'd been hurt. You know, it was a time, a lot of pain for people who were dying en masse. I mean, it was terrible. I was a bartender in the village and I was watching people die by the score. People don't, I mean, if you weren't in New York or San Francisco at that time, I don't think you could understand how bad it was. I don't like to think of it. You don't like to stink enough? Look, I just got one year left to my sins in this damn school, then I'm free, and I don't want to blow it. There's nothing after high school. There's only more stink. It's interesting, having seen it again, you know, there's levels of feelings I have watching it, because I miss Chris, you know. I can't believe he died so young. Victoria was like, you know, I fell in love with her, and she was a great love of my life when I was young for a while, and. I don't know where, she's living in LA somewhere, I think, and I haven't seen her like in 15 years, and everyone else sort of, you know, we all drift away, right? Life goes on, and I'm so young. It's almost 40 years ago this movie was made. It's about time. And they don't need you out there today. And they sure need something. There's some fucking brains is what they need. Why do they do it? Team has gotta do something here. When we all shot together, there was no issues, no big personalities, as I recall, no tantrums, no, everyone was dedicated to making the film and showed up and worked hard for it. So there's no, none of that stuff, that I, as I recall. I mean, we did things that were dangerous that I would object to now. I did things, like I did a stunt where I fell into the gully, which when I look back on that, that was a fairly dangerous stunt. And we didn't really rehearse it in a way that we should have. I mean, it was a 12-foot drop, dude. It was a pretty big drop. Of course, at the time, I was like, oh, oh, I could do that, no problem. You know, look, I'd done a lot of stunts. I was act. I mean, I used to break horses and stuff like that when I was a kid. So 
I had no sense that I could ever be hurt. So I drove the car completely crazy. I drove it, you know, I did a lot of the driving in those chase scenes. I was fearless in those days. I would be, I'd be like, sorry, we're not doing that today. No, that's not safe. I'm not stupid enough to get killed over a movie. <laughs> but we had, we were young. And I mean, Doug was young, right? Doug was 20 something. So uh, we were all kids doing this movie. And the irony is that the kid, the young group is, I felt kind of bad for <laughs> Maureen Mooney because when we did the film, uh, we, we were all the young people hung out together and she was sort of isolated. And now I understand what that's like because I'm the older <laughs> actor and like I did this film 10 years ago, The Grudge in, in, in Japan, and everybody's 17 except for two of us uh, who are the parents. And Jennifer Beals played my wife, and she's a superstar in Japan. So, like, forget it. I, and I'm not hanging out with her. Plus, she was having a baby, I think. And so I was all alone in Japan with these 17 year olds. I have never felt so lonely in my life. Well, well, well. I'm surprised you'd even show your face around here. Nobody quits the team. You're a coward. When I think of John John, um, I hadn't thought about John John for a long time, but you know, when I look back on it, I mean, things are happening to John John. John John made a decision to opt out of this social circle he was in, and then because of that, he kind of is vulnerable to these other influences, you know, and uh, gets involved with Dickens and the, and the gang. And so I, I love the idea of this guy being sort of a, you know, coming from a central kind of average, he hadn't challenged himself because the character is withholding. You know, the character's afraid and he's like this. So he's always like watching, but he wants to go somewhere, right? So the thing I missed watching John John when I, as an older actor looking back was his active choices. In other words, even though the show is written that Dickens and Millian and these other people are manipulating him and moving him around, as an actor, you need to choose to do something in a scene, not be pulled into something. That's where I feel like I missed, you know, the boat and a lot of that stuff. I fell into the trap of a, of a passive character and so I sort of just let other people run the scene when in fact John John should have been saying, wanting this. And so if you want it but you're afraid, then you have that tension. But if you're just sort of like watching and doing this, it's just not as dynamic, you know. Weren't you like Mr. Football earlier this week? Yeah, I was, but that's all over now. There's a sadness in John John, which is true, but they, I didn't get his anger. And I think if I got his anger, how angry he was, I would have had more, there'd have been more spark in the character. That's what I was talking about earlier. But I didn't tap into John John's anger. I think for reasons that were personal, I, didn't, I wasn't ready to feel that, you know, in some ways. I, was, I felt safe feeling his sadness, but I didn't feel safe feeling his rage. Um, I love acting rage because it's, but feeling it, what's underneath that is quite difficult. Miss Storm, please, please. It was John John's idea. I'm sorry, please, Miss Storm. It was a game. It was a game, Miss Storm. This is a funny story. I know that after the movie was done, Doug and I got together and we were, I mean, drunk and God knows what drugs we were doing. And I kept trying to convince him to put a crazy soundtrack on it. Because I said, if you put certain kinds of music on there, this could be a really funny movie. And, you know, 
Uh, he didn't want to, I don't, I don't remember what, I mean, we were wasted, who knows, if he even remembered the conversation, so. That was one of the things I do remember after making the movie thinking, is this going to be funny? I don't know. I don't know. He did the he did he did the classic '80s horror movie synthesized soundtrack to give it that vibe, and I personally would have gone with a, you know, wah wah wah. Not quite that bad, but. I never saw the film. I don't think in a. Th I know I didn't see it in a theater with an audience. I don't think I probably would have been happy at the time. At the time, I wanted to be serious and taken seriously, and this was not something I wanted people to see. Then about, I'd say, uh, gosh, I mean, I was in my 30s. Uh, so I, the, the, I, apparently this had been released for a while, and I did not know about it. And then someone said on IMDb or something, you've got a credit. I was like, what the hell, hi, what's that? And then I looked at it and I was like, oh. And then a friend of mine gave me the DVD, this Joe Bob Briggs version of it, which I was like, thanks. <laughs> right now though, we've got one more movie on tonight's drive-in double feature. Hell high, six breasts, seven dead bodies, three stars, rated R, check it out, and I'll be back one more time. I learned a lot on that movie. I, I, I actually, in a way, and I don't I hate to say this, but when you're watching people make mistakes, that's when you really learn. You can, oh, that's that's what this is. They're trying to do this. And so I saw a lot of that, you know, and uh, which he was a young director and we were all young. And I believe me, if I was directing, I would have made tons of mistakes. But it was a, a great learning experience about just how to set up a camera and how to move and what to do and what, you know, driving and acting. I'd never done anything like that. I mean, I'd been on stages. You know, the most I'd done is like a fight an act, you know, fencing or something. But driving and acting, stunt driving, fighting in front of a camera, knowing where your camera is, knowing when to save your energy. So you learn techniques as an actor, and I was very grateful for that. Why are you doing this, oh, man? She's part of that system. I told you, limits! I mean, I went through a lot of stuff in my 20s with drinking and craziness, and I, I went and lived in Mexico for a while. I went and lived in Colorado for a while in the mountains. I was really kind of trying to figure out what I was doing, who I was, and it wasn't really until my early 30s, I mean like 30 years old, where I started really committing back to acting again. I also want to say this. First of all, making a movie is almost impossible. Completing a movie is, a, 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 is something anyone should say, hey, I made a movie. <laughs> so you don't get to talk to me. Because he did finish this movie, and he, you know, he wrote a film, he got actors, filmed the thing, he put it together, I and mean, it's, it's a coherent story, and it's a coherent movie. I mean, that's a major success. I don't want to take myself too seriously, so hopefully, you know, we can all laugh and also say, hey man, there's something of value here, and it's fun. You, eyes to me. I had forgotten about it, really. It's not something on my, in my mind, and then Hell High comes back. 
<laughs> the Revenge of Hell High. I was a still photographer when I was in high school, and then a friend of mine bought a eight millimeter camera, and he was making these movies. And then every summer we started making movies, and we would make a 45 minute movie, and they were largely based on Clint Eastwood movies. At one point we had a guy walking around a poncho in Detroit, and you know, and he was pretty good. He actually looked a lot like his name is Clint Meyer, and he kind of really evoked Clint Eastwood pretty well. And so they were kind of comedies, and we did, and, and, um, and so we did that. And so I thought, at some point I go to my parents, I go, you know, I think I want to be a filmmaker. And like, I'm in Detroit, and there's no one in the arts at all, other than like Iggy Pop, who's like crazy, you know, jumping on people, and you know, and no, no one in any art other than music. And so I'm like, you know, they're like, well, you could do that as a hobby, but like, like get a real job. And I kind of hedged my bet my freshman year in college. And then I went, no, I'm not going to be the guy who didn't try. Like, I'm going to try. And then if like I'm 30, which would be infinitely old at that point, and I didn't make it, then I'll do something else. But I'm not going to be the person who never gave it a chance. And so then I uh, went, to, uh, uh, went to college. And then I, went, I got in a program in England and uh, British drama and filmmaking, and that got me inspired even more. And then I went to New York and didn't know anybody and uh, worked my way up from the bottom. And I, my very first job, I, I took a class at NYU Continuing Education in lighting, and there was a guy working at the stage that was shooting at a sound stage. And I go, and I start talking to this guy, and he goes, I hate my fucking job. I hate it. And I go, Well, you know, I'd do anything for your job. And you go, look, I'm going to quit this place. And I said, well, when you quit, can you do me a favor and call me? And so one night he calls me. And he goes, I quit. I'm out. And so the next morning, I, I, 7 in the morning, I go to that place, the stage. And I go, hey, you, you know, anybody need a job here? I mean, I'm looking for a job. You need anybody? And of course, I know they do. But I don't want them to know that I know that guy because obviously they probably hated him. So I'm like, um, you need a job, you know, and the guy goes, well, we can take someone part-time. And so I was working at a camera store, like that was my job to live on. And that, so every morning, or every night after I'd leave the camera store, I would go to this place and work till midnight, and all weekend. So for, I don't know, three months, I only worked. And then finally the guy said, I'll hire you. And I worked there for a couple of years, and basically I was a janitor. Um, and he called me a stage manager, but what did I do? I mopped the floors, I cleaned the toilets, 
I served coffee in the morning. I cleaned up everything afterwards. I cleaned all the lights. And I was a janitor. And, uh, but what was good is the guy, Nick Smith, he, he taught me how to work a wood shop. So help, because if I could help build sets, you know, that was good. He taught me all about electricity. And I got paid $105 a week. And, uh, but it was the best thing I could have done because then even when I left it, like, year, you know, for two years out, I'd be doing some low-budget movie, and I'd, I'd go there, and I'd go, look, you know, you got any lights nobody's using? And then we'd go into the store and all the shitty lights, but they still worked, and you go, look, take these. You could have them for free. And so I would use, you know, so he helped me uh, get myself going, and he was a, uh, really one of my mentors, so to speak. But I did, I did think I'd start at, as low at, to the bottom as anybody. I think I want to go to New York because I'm going to end up in L.A. And, and I and it, you know one of those weird things, like that you have when you you're 20, and actually it's true, you know I said if I just go to LA I'm never going to live in New York. If I go to New York first, then I'll, I'll end up in Hollywood, and which is what happened. So I actually at 20 years old I did know, but what was weird about New York is I come from Detroit, I get off the bus at Port Authority, I'm walking down Eighth Avenue and 40th Street, and I go, wait I, not only do I belong here. But I was supposed to grow up here. The stork made a mistake. Something's wrong. I was supposed to be here. This is where I was supposed to grow up. And I, it was such a strong feeling in my whole body. Cut to 30 years later, and my father passed away. And I, I'm going to the funeral, and the rabbi asked me, well, say something about your father. And my mother says something. You know, she goes, you know, well, we were in New York for one year, but, you know, my... You know, your father wanted to come back to Detroit. I don't know why. And then I finally said to her, I said, wait a second. Okay, I know I was born in Detroit, but where was I conceived? And she goes, well, yeah, you were conceived in New York. And so actually what happened is, so I said, so my father who didn't have a job in New York, now his wife is pregnant and he could get a job in Detroit. So he actually sacrificed his dream of living in New York to come back here. But when I was conceived, you thought you were living in New York. And you thought I was going to grow up there, right? They go, yeah. So I was, and then here's the weirdest thing. The first place I lived, which I didn't know any of this, I lived on the same block as I was conceived in. I was, I was just around the corner. You didn't have to cross the street to get there. So I, I believe in spirit. And I believe in all these mystical things, as you can tell. I remember they called me up and said, you want to do this movie? And I met Doug. And I really liked him. He's the greatest guy. And so I agreed to do the movie. And at that time, I was a, you know, I was looking for any features I could shoot as a cinematographer. It was at the beginning of my career as a director of photography. And so it was, uh, you know, this was this film with a guy I really liked that I could do. <laughs> was I a fan of horror films? And in truth, not particularly. Well, when I was six or seven years old, my mother used to drop me off at the, at the movie theater on Saturdays to watch a double bill. And one time she dropped me off, and they showed Them, which is an ant movie, but then, then they showed Eyes Without a Face. And I was in this movie, and I became terrified. And I ran out into the movie theater, into the lobby, and then every, I was sitting there alone. And like when you, it seems like forever when you're a little kid. And then I would peek my head in and run out again. And I, this two hours that I was waiting for my mother to come rescue me seemed like a year. 
And so I was always scared of horror films. And the truth is, I did, I've never seen Eyes Without a Face until about five months ago. I go, I think I can handle it now. And um, I watched it, and it is scary. It is really disturbing. It's an art horror film. It's French. And it's, it's you know, it's fucked up. It's like a, I go, no kidding. Like the, the idea that some kids should see this. They, they remove somebody's face. They, they cut around it, and you watch they pull this girl's face off, and then she's walking around with like bandages like this. It's horrifying. I mean, it's, it's, it is horrifying. And so, okay. And so I wasn't into horror, and one of the scenes in the movie that freaks me out is when they kill Millie, and they're pounding her face. I thought I was going to throw up. And so then, I, you know, I'm always like, well, I don't like horror, I don't like horror. And then, and I, the other thing is, I used to have terrible nightmares when I was a little kid, terrible. And so finally, when I did Nightmare on Elm Street 4, I, I, I looked at the storyboards and I go, this can be an art film, this can be really good. I'm gonna go into the, all the nightmares. I mean, all that stuff that I avoided, I'm gonna embrace it. And I'm gonna go dark, and I'm gonna do this. And I loved it. And so since that time, I'm very interested in horror. And I'm, in fact, I've written a horror script that I'm gonna try to direct. Um, uh, I, 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 it doesn't mean I can watch Saw. That kind of crosses the line for me. But um, the, I just saw, like for example, Titan, which I think is a masterpiece. And so, uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I've, after many, many years, I've come around to embracing the horror genre. And I love this film, by the way. I love it. Well, especially in low-budget indies, you know, it's not that unusual for the, for the DP to operate. And in those days, I operated every movie I did and all commercials and music videos I operated. Um, nowadays, I've done a lot of television. In television, you don't, usually don't operate, especially because you have two cameras. Also, in those days, you're shooting one film camera 90% of the time. Now it's 90% of the time there's two cameras. And so then, if you're operating one, you can't see what the other one's doing, and so there's an advantage to not operating. Um, so all the television work, I would never operate. Uh, maybe I would grab the camera for one shot, but mostly they're operating, I'm lighting it and telling them what to do or adjusting what they do, but I'm not operating myself. But um, I love operating, I think most DPs do. Roger Deakin still operates. Um, and some DPs still do, but it, because I've been doing television, it kind of took me out of operating. And then the other thing is I'm short, so I'm very good for operating a movie like Secretary, which I operated, because you know I'm op I have a woman I'm shooting, and I'm, I'm the perfect height to shoot a w most women. But like Entourage, which was a handheld show that I DP'd, there's no way I could have been the, the operator on that because I'm not the right height. So in order to do that show, you had to be five foot. 10 to 6 feet. If you were shorter or taller than that, you couldn't do that show. You're sure you don't want me to come in? Oh, oh no, I, I don't feel well. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll call you some other time. Sorry can... about the game. Oh, oh, it was fine, fine. I'll just come in. No, I'll, uh, I'll be okay. I'll see you at school. <laughs> it was very disorganized. The people, some of the people who were producing it were inexperienced. Nice people, but inexperienced and they would make some decisions that cost a lot of money and were unnecessarily. One of the things I remember was 
we, you know, usually what happens is you go into the house, you know, in these low budget movies, and you stay in that house. And it's because you shoot, you shoot all the stuff in the house, and then you shoot all the stuff outside the house, or the other way around. But you, once you go in that house, you stay there. And we would be like, we'd shoot for two days in the house, and then we'd go out. And we'd have to load up all the trucks and go shoot this thing over there. And then we'd come back two days later and shoot that. And we did this like two or three times, and I go to the, the uh, person who's making that decision, and I said, why are we doing that? You know, we save a lot of money and time by staying here. He goes, well, I thought everyone would get bored if we just stayed there the whole time. And I go, man, that's like, we're not, people get bored like loading that truck and unloading that truck with all that heavy shit, you know. So there were well-meaning people who were just beginners. And, you know, so there was a lot of money that was, we, that was wasted. And then also they didn't, maybe didn't have enough in the, to begin with. And so we shut down after, for, I think after two weeks or two and a half weeks, they said, we got to shut down. We're going to get some more money. And we'll be back in a month. And then a month goes by. Two months go by. We're going to shoot this in the summer. That never happens. And then finally, in the fall, exactly a year later, they had the money to do it again. They hired some people more experienced in production. And we finished it. And I think um, it was about half and half, something like that. And the challenge was we had scenes that we'd shot half of a year ago. And now we're coming back, and we're shooting same people, but some people look different, especially the lead actress, now being eight months pregnant, and we're shooting shots of her. And nobody notices um, that, that she looks different because it doesn't make sense that she would look different, so people logically don't even think of it. And then the hardest thing for me was lighting at the same, because we use very heavy gels in this. And it, you know, a year later, what gel did we use? And I would move the gels until... Suddenly, I'm looking through the camera, and I get a quiver, and I go, oh, my God. Like, what the fuck's going on? I can feel my whole body freaking out. And my body's trying to figure out where it is. And it's because it's in the same place, but it's a year later, and now it looks the same. I'm looking at the same actor I did a year ago, and now the color's just right. And so then I knew it was right. So when I had to feel this, like, tingle, and they go, okay, that's it. We're ready to shoot. And then I knew it matched a year ago. <laughs> It's over! When do you see what's happening? Help me! Give it up! We would be, you know, you shoot the most of the scene and she's just before she's going to jump out the window. Then the stunt person comes in wearing the same outfit. You set up the shot. The stunt person jumps out the window. That went very well. And then the blood effects. We didn't have any prosthetics other than the time that um, Millie gets killed. <laughs> And that took a while, but not, not anything excessive. And they did a great job. It's horrifying to look at. This movie, and I think Doug, his script and his point of view, was, I connected deeply, deeply to it. And, we, and, and we, we looked at paintings and art books and that kind of thing and talked about what kind of imagery we could do. We had a couple of movie references for me. The movie I was thinking of was the, the movie If, Lindsay Anderson movie with Malcolm McDowell, where these kids are really angry in this prep school. And of course, it's in England. It looks like a castle where they live. So it's very different. But um, that's what I was kind of thinking of, that kind of sensibility. And, and we just connected. And so, you know, that's your dream as a cinematographer, to find a director where, like, you, you're almost thinking the same things. And if you show the, show the director that, they love it. And if they tell you something, you love it. And you have that collaboration where it 
all works like magic. And, and this, for me, this film was one of those rare experiences. Class, class, what does it take to reach you people? This is not far, I'll take this. Mr. Dickens, file those test papers. Uh, these test papers, man? File them. Did you say file them? File. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> They're filed. Okay, so I thought of this film as like as three different worlds. There's the world of the school, which looks gray and neutral and boring. And then you have the, the, the world of her home, which should be warm. And then just outside, the night, which should be very cold and dehumanizing and kind of scary. And the contrast between her home, the inside, where it's warm, which is supposed to remit safety, her home, and then the nightmare that's outside, you know, that I wanted a visual contrast to that. And also, I didn't want it to look, I wanted it to feel like a nightmare. And then again, nightmares, as I mentioned before, they're important to me. I didn't want it to feel like something that was normal. It had to feel like heightened, like a nightmare might feel. And I do feel, I came up, one of my first jobs in LA was working for Dean Cundy as an electrician, great cinematographer. And one of the standard things, it's true, that people use for night is they would put the color steel blue, steel blue gel on the light. And that was your night look. And that was common. And so when, I, when we came to this, I went, yeah, yeah, I still like that, but that's not enough. And so I put two or three layers of steel blue on the lights. So then it gets much more theatrical, more abstract. And then I wanted to contrast that with the warm. And instead of just using a normal warm gel, I was using red and yellow gels combined on these lights to make it super warm and a good contrast with the steel blue to make them the opposite. So, and it even works dramatically, even a close-up on actors where looking out that way toward the night, that's one color. And then when you look this way, it's looking toward the warmth of the home. And so the, and I pushed it as far as I could. And, uh, and with the film stock of that time, I'm actually, I was thrilled to see this movie for the first time in 30 years and go, I really like that. I just interviewed the cinematographer of Nightmare Alley, Dan Lauston, and he used steel blue in the thing that he did. So there it is, steel blue. A good job for nightmares and horror films. Hey, ladies, hey, John John! My memory is there's just two film stocks. There was a slower speed film that had the highest quality that you used in the daytime. And then there was a, the one night film stock that was ASA 320, and that was what you used. Now, for sure, 90% of the movie takes place at night, and that's what we're using that one film stock. So it's really, the only thing you can really do is put filters on it, you know, pick a certain kind of lens. But in those days, you were using a, a 35BL, you were using the Zeiss high super speed lenses, that's what you would use. And then you could put a filter on it if you wanted to. And I maybe I put on the, I don't remember what filter I used, but I might have used those Harrison and Harrison uh, uh, 1 8 uh, what's it called, something fog, double fog. 1 8 double fog Harrison and Harrison filter was very common. I used that a lot. I didn't notice a lot of filter effect, though. So maybe I didn't even use a filter. And then, um, and then you could use gels on the lights. And that's kind of all you could do to affect the way your movie looked. What lens, what filter, what gels. Of course, now you have so many controls in digital 
you know, that, that it, your choices are much wider. And the other thing was we used a lot of wide-angle lenses, and we, we staged a lot of things in masters. The integration of the lens with the, cam with the staging was excellent, as far as I was concerned. There are not that many cuts in a, in a scene. You see the actor over there, and they come close, and then they walk that way. Then another actor comes in, and it's all playing without having to cut. It's very elegant in that way. And um, I really, really enjoyed that and found that inspiring um, to see, you know, I thought it was cinematic. And, and so I, I, I very much enjoyed this film. There's a lot of shots where you, you have someone very big in the foreground or someone really far, or the car drives really far away. Or there's a shot of, you know, Chris in the foreground, they're looking at the house and they're in the, the woods. And then the other Chris runs up and climbs on the roof. And he's very small over there, very wide angle lens. And it just has a, a kind of a more surreal quality, which is what I wanted. And so the use of the wide angle lens, and I thought the compositions, I was surprised that, that I was that good then. I, go, that, I looked at it and go, that guy's kind of good. He should have a career. We always go there after the games. Quarterback will be there. John John. Take the car and find solid proof that the quarterback was having storms tonight. What if I get caught? Then we're all fucked. <sighs> Big challenges in the production were, you know, especially the, the first part was production that was unorganized and then not having enough money. One of the crazy things was, I remember this, like the first, the first part of it, we'd get there and we'd get ready to shoot and we'd go, well, where's the other actor? Oh, we forgot to call him. And we're in Scarsdale, okay? So that means he's in New York City. He's got to get on the train and come there. And this happened like in a two or three week shoot. It happened like multiple times. And so you would light the shot and then you're waiting for the actor to get there. And um, I actually developed the ability to fall asleep in any circumstance that I've been able to use for the rest of my life. I could be sitting on the dolly, and if the act, you know, okay, well, he's not going to be here for half an hour, and I could just fall asleep right there. Um, so I, I learned, that's one skill I learned. Uh, it's a funny skill. Um, so that was the challenging thing, but the great thing I felt was I had a great crew, and we did almost every shot as a dolly shot, and the, the collaboration of my crew is astonishing. I can't believe how many dolly shots there are and shots that really work and some challenging shots with cars and stuff that are perfectly done and for no money. I'm very lucky to have worked with Dean Cundy and to start out with that because I, I was in New York. I was working on mo a lot of just documentary. I was a camera assistant for Nancy Schreiber, and she was doing mostly documentaries then. And in documentaries at that time in New York, there was almost like, not Nancy, but other people, it was like the purpose of lighting is to get it light enough so we can shoot this. And then I 
got a job working on Rock and Roll High School with Dean Cundy, and suddenly lighting is about like, we're gonna make something beautiful. And the scale of lighting was enormous compared to what you could do in New York. And New York's harder, you know, taking lights up stairwells into apartment buildings, there's no power, you're trying to tie into some circuit box that hasn't been opened in years, and it's got like ants coming out of it. And, and then, you know, and then New York, I mean, then you go to LA and there's a generator, and you have big lights and all that. And so I learned how to light from Dean. You know, the way that he lights even now has, uh, has affected me. I was just lucky to be on the crew with him. Dean shot um, Back to the Future, and I did come on the set of that. I wasn't working with him then because I was DP by then. They asked me to work on it, but I couldn't. I was DPing some low budget something that nobody's ever seen when I could have been, a, you know, like a riggy gaffer on Back to the Future. But I, I, I had a very funny thing happen on Back to the Future, whereas I came on the set and they were shooting in that big square, the town square, and I'm watching, you know, and they've lit this big scene. They have a big silk there, and and because the actors are in this car or something, and the sun goes behind a cloud, and I see the sun's not going to come out, and I look at Dean, and he looks at me, and we both grab this 12 by 12 silk and move it out of the way. And I thought, and I'm just like a guest. I'm like dressed up in it. I think I even wore like practically a suit and tie because I was like so intimidated to go on this big Hollywood set. And suddenly I go, oh, this is just back like doing the, the fog in Rock and Roll High School. Like me and him are grabbing this thing and we're taking it out of the way. Because he looked around and the, the crew was a great crew, but for some reason they weren't there and they didn't see it as quick as I did and he did. And so like we just grabbed this thing and moved it. And it was like, uh, I go, okay, well, there's still some things that never change. I think every scene we used was in the movie because the movie was short. And at that time, there was a feeling the movie had to be 90 minutes long. And I think it was like 88 or something, so they made the credits a little longer and stuff. So I don't think there's anything cut out. I think everything we shot is in there. We gotta get out of here. What happened? The car's back. The car's back? Yeah, but no sign of John John. So where's John John? He's missing in action. He isn't around. What are they trying to pull? Come on, we gotta get out of here. It's got to be the quarterback. He must have caught up with John John and made him bring him back here. Hey, you might be right. Let's get going. Just stop. Slow down a minute and think. I think the benefit of this movie for me was a development of myself on a creative level because I had such a good experience with Doug. And I was able to push the limits of lighting and camera in a way that I always wanted to. Like, I'm looking at these shots, and I went, these shots I like. Okay, I'm not doing something for a network or somebody else that may have a different idea of what I would want to do. I'm going, I get these scenes. I understand the rage of these characters, the anger in this movie. I really like it. And I think the shots help tell that. And so I connect to it as a kind of anarchist art film. In terms of the fact, I mean, in some ways I do regret that it is in the horror genre. I think maybe some of, you know, that maybe that it's kind of straddling the two genres, which I think is challenging, especially in a marketing sense. Um, but my, and, and I would say that, but what I connect to is the kind of the, the emotional undertone of this movie I really like. And I felt like I grew from it. In terms of my career, I don't think it made any difference at all because I, it didn't have a big release. And you need the giant release in order for it to make your career jump up to the next level. It had an artistic benefit for me because I was doing something that was creatively expressive. That's a big benefit. You should have stayed dead in the swamp where I left you. Oh my God, the swamp legend. You. No! 
Jaja, get me down. What the hell's going on, She's man? She's the one. She kills teenagers to swamp. She's crazy. So I almost forgot about this movie until you and uh, contacted me and said he'd restored it. And I was thrilled to hear that. Because again, it was a movie I loved, but had disappeared a little bit. And then when I saw it again, I, I couldn't believe how much I loved it. And it actually inspired me. Uh, I just did this, uh, uh, this giant Amazon show, Wheel of Time. I did just did a couple, a little bit of it. And I actually used some of what I saw in this movie to apply to that. I go, I really like what I was doing then so many years ago. Very bold. I'm going to use some of that here. And what I, what I did use, I didn't use those, the green or the stream pink, but I, the, the contrast of warm and cold, I decided that's what I really wanted to do in the show. And I'm um, very, very happy with what I, how I applied that to the thing I just did. So I'm learn I learned from my youthful self. I love this movie and, and you know, no, nothing's perfect, but I think if you look at what's good about it, it's fantastic. I'm just thrilled that it's coming out again and that people have a chance to see it. And I'm thrilled that I had a chance to see it again. Well, I wrote the script with Leo Evans, um, who I met out in Los Angeles. And like a lot of uh, projects uh, I did at that time, it was just sitting around. We, we were out of work. Um, we had a lot of time to kill. We'd lay around, you know, watching TV, talking about things. And we started talking about high school and uh, everybody's fantasy about that teacher who's just so sexy and you can score with. And we thought, well, Let's do somebody who's carrying some baggage. So when you scratch the surface, you really get, uh, you get a big surprise. Well, actually, the original title was What Do You Want to Do Tonight, uh, which we had taken from the film Marty. Uh, and it was a standard line that we had you know, in Los Angeles. I mean, it was just laying around, what do you want to do tonight? Because we'd go out all night, and that's why we were laying around during the day. I can't live like this, you know? Oh, you can't? No. So we went through a number of titles, one being Apocalypse High, but people felt that <laughs> that was a little too much and we shouldn't use Apocalypse with a high school horror picture. Atrocity High was another idea. Uh, we decided we'd go with Hell High. Raging Fury was the foreign title. And um, that really was a, uh, an idea that came about from um, the uh, foreign distributor. There were a lot of films coming out for that market. Um, we felt we could get something going in that market uh, with that age group. We were having a hard time breaking into the studio system. Um, it was very difficult and we were young and we wanted an immediate result. And I think at the time we felt if we did a horror film we could do it for a reasonably low budget and probably do it better than what we had been seeing and get it distributed. There were a lot of independents at the time who seemed to like the genre. Um, and we wanted to put a contemporary kind of twist on it uh, that, that worked in a realm of reality. 
So we were influenced by what we were seeing uh, in the early 80s, and then we jumped off from there and combined it kind of with the teenage genre as well. So we thought we could mix those two together and come up with a pretty entertaining, uh, fun picture with, with a, com a comedic undertone. And I, I, think that, I think we achieved it. it. I was never a huge fan of the horror genre, but I did like Brian De Palma, and I loved Phantom of the Paradise. Um, I thought it was great. It had a good sense of humor, but really bloody, uh, over-the-top, uh, really exciting scenes, and a uh, kind of twisted story to it. And I had worked with Brian De Palma on The Fury um, when I had first gotten out of uh, school. So I got to see him work close up. And The Fury also uh, that had an influence because I had worked on it, and it came up a couple of years before we did Hell High. I like the classic horror films. Um, like Frankenstein, Dracula, I love that stuff. It's supposed to be very dreamlike because it was obviously the teacher's childhood, um, which is why we used the Steadicam for it. We wanted to give the impression that it was floating. And so I decided we'd use a uh, little girl's party dress and really take it to the nth degree and really kind of, we wanted the elements to be bizarre. We were going to dye the footpath a certain color, a bluish color, but we, of course, didn't have the money to do it. Um, and it was going to reflect off the sky, which was going to be a different color. We were going to gel that and filter it, but we couldn't. So we, we worked with what we had, and we wanted to give it a really kind of a bizarre, dreamlike quality of an adult female thinking back to this highly traumatic childhood experience of watching a, uh, a uh, woman get, uh, which she thought was molested, but wasn't. Obviously, it was just a sexual encounter, but uh, it was traumatic for her. <laughs> she carried the burden the rest of her life <laughs> until she met the bad kids at school. I loved when Queenie, who was played by Millie Prezioso, got her brains beat in. And <laughs> there was a personal reason for that also. I had been dating Millie. And we had broken up during the film, so it gave me kind of a sick pleasure to watch her get smashed with the rock and hear her brain squish all over it. And she was a little panicked about the scene also. She, I mean, she really, uh, the makeup was so heavy on her that when she saw herself in the makeup mirror, she freaked because it was very realistic. And then when the rock, which was made out of, it wasn't a styrofoam, it was a rubber material, was actually being bashed on her. Uh, I think she just, you know, just lost it. So I, I got a personal kick out of that. Um, I love the number two pencil in the head. Uh, that was a great scene. Um, and that was something we had wanted to do because how many times in school they always told you have to have a number two pencil. And we just basically wanted to shove it somewhere. And so we did it in Smiler's head. And I like the uh, way the scene was shot. We actually strapped a camera uh, we, we did a camera platform that was strapped to Smiler's um, chest, so the camera was looking right at him. And in those days, you didn't have miniaturized cameras, um, so he carried this heavy camera rig and got a pencil in his head and walked down the stairs. I think he spun around twice and walked down the stairs, so I thought that was very effective. <laughs> Mr. Dickens, put that back. Okay, uh, this is one of the frogs we used in the dissection scene. Everybody who's gone to high school goes through biology and gets, 
has to dissect the frog, and we couldn't figure out if we were going to actually buy the frogs that they use. We didn't really have the money, so our uh, special effects guy came up with this and did a mold and did up, uh, you know, I don't know, 50 of them, and then we painted them, and we were really happy with these. We thought they looked very realistic on screen, and I've kept this for the past 15 years, so it's a little memento of the film. I was really proud of when uh, Miss Brooke, the teacher, uh, goes out the window. The motorcycle stuff, when that exploded, uh, again, a big stunt on a, on a very low budgeted picture. The swamp scene uh, was particularly trying. Um, it, we shot it in the dead of winter. It was very cold. It was very creepy. Um, it took a lot to get the equipment out there, and in the middle of it, we discovered a old Mercedes-Benz in the swamp, abandoned, and, you know, everybody was sure that there was something in the trunk, or and we had to call the police, and it shot, it's, uh, they shut the set down for two hours, and we were fighting uh, daylight on that, so that, that was a big problem. We were working very long hours. It was a very quick shoot. It was originally scheduled for 15 days. It was stretched to 18, and we shot six uh, day weeks. So it was really a three-week shoot. And we moved around a lot, and a lot of the picture took place at night. So we were constantly battling sun, uh, daylight coming up. The MPAA rating in America was okay. Um, uh, we were afraid of the lesbian scene between uh, Queenie and the teacher, where she straddles her on the bed in her bedroom. Um, but because there was no nudity with that, we didn't run into problems. Uh, foreign distribution, though, we ran into a lot of problems. Um, again, not sexual, but violence, uh, especially in the Scandinavian countries. Italy, which was really surprising, yeah, shocked. In America, no, they, they wanted us to uh, cut the, uh, as I said, the lesbian scene. I think that we took out two seconds. I think there was a touching uh, part, and we were allowed to leave a little bit of it, but uh, I, I think she really went at it on her breasts, and they, they had a problem with that. Other than that, we had no problems. Foreign territories, it played everywhere. Um, I don't think it played much of Africa, but it did play South Africa. Um, it played all the Scandinavian countries. It played uh, Great Britain. Uh, it was in Canada, France, Germany, Italy. Uh, I know they sold the Eastern European countries about five years after the initial release. And we did okay video in America. Theatrical, it was the times where it was a limited release. It was a rollout release. So it played, uh, it played four or five cities at a time. And then they take those prints and roll it to another city. And we eventually, I think we started with 10 prints and we eventually ended up with 45 prints of the film. Uh, Maureen Mooney, who played, uh, I guess it, it wasn't Miss Brooke, it's Brooke Storm is the teacher. Um, we had shot about uh, 20 usable minutes of the film and ran out of money and had to shut down and go out and raise the rest of the money. And we were off for about two and a half months. Uh, Maureen had not informed us she was pregnant when she started the film because she didn't think it was going to show. She was only a couple months pregnant at that point, I think two to three months pregnant. And she didn't show. There were no problems. 
As a matter of fact, she was going to do the nude scene in the shower, but we just decided for aesthetic reasons to use somebody else. Um, and we couldn't tell. When she came back on the set the first day, she informed me that she was five and a half months pregnant, and it was showing. So, so we ran into some real problems there. And I don't know if you're watching the film. I don't think you can see it, but we really had to shoot around her. And there were some really physical things on that movie as well that we had to put her through. So I was constantly worried about that. And so that, that was a big shock to us. What I remember about the film's theatrical release was uh, my co-producer and I, David Steinman, uh, decided that we would go down to the uh, Washington, D.C., Baltimore area, which was one of the uh, areas that the film was originally going to be released in. It rolled out, I believe, in uh, initially six cities. And uh, we lived in New York. It was an easy drive. We went down. We were very excited and scared to death as well. And we went to, uh, the first theater we went to was showing the picture during the day. I believe they had a three o'clock was the first show, three, three in the afternoon. And it was in Alexandria, Virginia, which really wasn't the market for the picture, but it was in a mall cinema. So, and we went, and I think there was two people in the theater, um, in our theater. Uh, but uh, K-9 was playing there as well, and they didn't have anybody in the theater. And uh, Clint Eastwood's picture, Pink Cadillac, I think it was called Pink Cadillac, was playing in the other theater, and they had 10. So we didn't feel that badly. We then went to a show um, in Gaithersburg, Maryland, which was more suburban, um, but we felt there'd be kids there. It was a little better. It was a 7 o'clock show. I think there were 15 people in the theater, and about half were laughing and getting it. The other weren't, so we left. We then wandered, drove around aimlessly around the Washington, D.C. area and ended up in College Park, which is where the University of Maryland is, for the midnight screening. That was sold out, and that audience got it, and that was an unbelievable experience. Uh, strange thing is, the picture was rolled out over the course of a year. And it finally played New York City. And I had gotten married in the meantime and was on my honeymoon out of the country and didn't get to see it in New York. Uh, I had uh, a friend's uh, son over the other day. He, he was visiting with his parents. And his parents wanted him to see the picture. He's 13, which is perfect. Uh, maybe a little young, I don't know. But he, we popped it on the video, and he was uh, enthralled, you know, for the 88-minute running time. So and he liked it. He thought it was great. Uh, Christopher Cousins was also good. He had just gotten out of college, very innocent, moved to New York, uh, trying to break into uh, the entertainment business as an actor. I believe he went to the University of Oklahoma. And Chris was quiet, but uh, always prepared, very, uh, very well prepared, very commanding and has since gone on. I believe he's done a soap opera. I think it was Days of Our Lives, yeah. And he was on it for quite a while. And uh, he's done a lot of commercials and things like that, so. Millie had an interesting, uh, one of the interesting things Millie had done was uh, she, had, uh, she was one of the uh, students in Welcome Back Cotter in the classroom. <laughs> uh, Jason Brill, um, again, a young actor uh, from New York. He's since gone on to do some commercials. Um, I really don't know where he is at this point. And Maureen Mooney. Maureen at that point was kind of getting out of acting. She had also done soaps. Brooke, you okay? 
she was in uh, the French Connection and had a very small part, but we all thought that was really neat because, you know, that was kind of an iconic film of our youth. So. Come on, everybody. Whip it. it was, yeah, it was, it was right, I, th I think Chris Stryker passed away either in 1990 or 1991 of AIDS. Um, and, you know, it, was, uh, it really hit everybody hard. He was very young and... Uh, had a great future ahead of him. Um, Christopher was one of those people who also, I mean, it was a low budget horror film, but he took it very seriously. And he was breaking in. He was starting like we all were. Um, and he had great suggestions. One of his suggestions, Stryker, his character, is a very twisted, warped guy. Um, and one of the suggestions he had for a credit sequence, the top credit sequence, was he was going to be walking his mother's toy poodle in his striker garb, screaming up to his mother in the window of her house that the dog just wouldn't go. And he thought that was hysterical, and it was. It was very good, it just didn't fit. But he, he came up with things like that all the time. I will tell you an interesting story now that I remember an anecdote on the set. The first day of shooting, uh, Chris Stryker was driving the Mustang which we had picked up for like 800 bucks. We couldn't believe we had gotten it so cheap. And we liked it, it was all beat up, just the way you see it in the film. And Stryker, I don't believe had a driver's license, though he told us he did. And he had the other three kids in the car, which was basically our cast. And we were doing drive-bys on local streets up in Westchester County. And he had done one or two and we realized he had a problem driving but we weren't going to say anything because it was the first day we figured maybe he was nervous we had the shot all set up we told him to go when he was ready not to go but we're ready you go when you're ready he took that as a go pulled out in front of a car which slammed its brakes on skidded off the road went across the car coming towards him went into his lane he was able to turn so we almost first half day of shooting wiped out our entire cast and that that was uh that was hairy so after that we limited christopher's driving for the most part uh, we we used a lot of fake blood i'll tell you something that was fun um was the pea soup mixture that was supposed to be the swamp bog that was sticking to the teacher uh when she comes back to her house uh, we kept going through different consistencies of that, and that gets back to The Exorcist. Everybody remembered the projectile vomiting of the pea soup-like uh, liquid, and we wanted to get it very similar to that. And we dyed it, and we tried all different colors, and it had to be edible because the actress had it smeared across her face. But what we didn't take into consideration was that it could freeze, and it was very cold, as I said, in the swamp, and we had her covered in it. She came out of the trailer, and about 20 minutes later, it had frozen on her, and she freaked, and it was just a mess. He turns over and impales the teacher. Um, it looked really good. It was a very complicated rig. It had it, um, a piece of fence post that was supposed to, he was supposed to pop it out. But we were concerned we had been using a kind of a hard rubber spear, and the actress actually had to leap onto it and it wasn't working, and Chris uh, Stryker was afraid of pulling it over and hurting her. So we did this rig where it actually popped up, it was put on his stomach, or his chest, popped up, 
and was made out of very pliable rubber, and then she went down. And then we had a rig on her back, which flipped up the spike through her back. And that was really neat, but we did it a little too dark and there was a lot of blood. And uh, we tried to lighten it as best we can. You can see it, but you know, I was very proud of it, so obviously I wanted it to show up. It's a real pleasant surprise 15 years later to have it coming out on DVD, and I hope everybody enjoys it. You know, it was it was funny that, and I wasn't on the whole shoot. I was there uh, probably half the time. We shot it in two different segments. We shot it. I think Douglas shot about maybe half, and he ran out of money, and then he shot the other half. And uh, I was on about half of each one of those shoots. But uh, most of it was shot at night, and I, it, it was just so. I think I, had the, I can't remember. I think the term Douglas used. We were chasing the night because we'd just start shooting and we're just trying to get as much done as we possibly could before the sun came up. We were like vampires. When the sun came up, we had to go home. I remember we'd work all night and guy, you'd just, you know, you'd be hammered and, and uh, drinking a beer at six o'clock in the morning so you could go home and go to bed and go to sleep, hopefully. And, and then uh, the next night you'd be chasing the night again. But uh, that's, uh, you know, and we changed it as we were doing it. I remember writing scenes the night that we, you know, that we were changing scenes and we were writing stuff that maybe we were going to do on the next night, and we might have even been doing them the same night. I don't remember. It was, uh, it was kind of wild. There was a lot of changes uh, from the original script. The original script was much more of a, a uh, suspense thriller than it, what it ultimately was. But I think, uh, you know, the money that they were going to get, and you know, to make it more bankable. It was probably the right move to make it more of a, a slasher and people being embedded on wrought iron fences and stuff like that. Originally, and I can remember this, Douglas and I had seen some, we were both living in LA and we were writers and we were just hanging out and, and uh, drinking a lot. and just partying and being kind of goofy really and uh, we'd seen some lame horror movie and uh, we went we were driving home said, God you know these things are so ridiculous and we basically came up with the idea of Hell High in the car and we went home and we wrote it in like two three weeks and that was it and we shopped it around we were represented writers and artists maybe at that point and uh, uh, we didn't have any luck, and one night I'm at a party, big party in L.A., and uh, 
somebody was talking about some guy that was downstairs and was going to make this movie. He he got some money and and they said well, somebody said what's the name of it? And the original title of Hell High is What Do You Want to Do Tonight? And they changed it to Hell High. And that, that was the whole point of the movie What Do You Want to Do Tonight? Like kids sitting around what What Do You Want to Do? Well, I don't know what do you want. So. Uh, they said, it's, what do you want to do tonight? And I said, well, you know, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I wrote that script. And they said, you better go talk to this guy. So I went down and talked to Douglas. And he was, <laughs> it was, he wasn't trying to pull anything off. And it was kind of funny. It was a funny way to find out that it was really, uh, the, the energy was in motion to make uh, Hell High a reality. Original, like I say, it was more of a suspense thriller than a. Th Although there was quite a bit of uh, gore and violence in it, but the original, and this is kind of interesting, the original, the uh, guy, the fall guy. When you see uh, Hell High, there is a definite fall guy that they, you know, they they pin the crimes on because he's all. I think even in the in this in the in the adapt what we changed is to guy that they always figured well he's an idiot he's guilty. In the original, it was uh, African Americans that were kind of the fall guy, and not it just because they knew that. They would be, you know, because they're African American, they would be, you know, more susceptible to being. Well, yeah, he did it, which I don't know if that's really, you know, I don't know how fair that is to the police. But we, that was the take we took on it, and they changed that. They they were just afraid that they might, uh, it might create some controversy that they really didn't want to deal with, which makes sense. And uh, but it was much different, much different. The the uh, the, the 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 rival gang or the rival club, whatever they were. Uh, factions. They were f bits of society. Like, and that's what that's one of the things that intrigued me always about Hell High is our friends, especially in high school. Were uh, you were friends with a lot of people? You didn't know why. I mean, he lived on your block. You might have hated the person, but you knew him, so he was your friend. And I think that that was part of a, actually a scene that was cut out was where John John the the protagonist, if there is one. <laughs> Uh, is kicked off the football team, and then he is a boy without a group, and he's he's lured into this other group, and I think high school is that way. It's a very tenuous time, and 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 where you are in in your life and in your position in whatever clique you're hanging out with is is it's not set in stone, and you and if you get cut loose from that, if you lose, if you're no longer tethered to that one group. Who knows where you're going to land? And that's what happens to this guy. And that, a lot of that was lost. Uh, they never shot the scene where he got kicked off the football team, which was one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. But it would have been more expensive, and it, they did away with it, and, and they explained it in dialogue. I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I certainly understood the, uh, the reasons for it. It's good to be home. Douglas, at one point, took a... Point. He started to do some stuff that I, I wish he would have followed, I, and I think it was his instinct, but he he just didn't follow it where he was shooting some stuff with, with the flashbacks with the little girl where he had a really weird filter on the camera to give the sky this surreal color, and I thought, man, that's, that's edgy, and I wish he stuck with that a little bit more, especially for the first two-thirds, but, you know, I, it wasn't my neck on the line like it was his, and I, and uh, he had so many people coming in from so many different directions, I, I could certainly understand why he didn't, but uh, uh, I think he did a great job.
and I admired how hard he worked and uh, and how he held it together. Because believe me, there were a lot of it, it was a low budget script, and there was just a the some of the actors were uh, you know pushing some as many buttons as they could get their fingers to, and Douglas did a great job just getting that thing done, and uh, I'm proud of him. He and, and he was a good friend then, and he's a good friend now. I think the last 30 minutes of Hell High are suspenseful, and I think they, they work then, and I think they work now, and I think, and, and honestly, I think there is an element of Hell High that is, uh, could be taken back to uh, Blue Velvet, when he gets that number two pencil in his temple. I just think that's funny. Uh, it, it's sick. And it's kind of scary, but it's it's funny. Uh, but I, I I think the last thirty minutes of it, I think they do stand up. I, you know, at the screening, I never was I was at any of the screenings for Hell High. I don't know why, how that happened. Uh, one funny thing, uh, Hell High played in France. It was uh, released internationally, and the title, the French title, was Raging Fury, whatever that translates to in French. And Douglas and I talked very seriously about flying to Paris and going to a, you know going to some theater watching Hell High or yeah Hell High in uh, in in French in in Paris. I wish we'd done it. We should have done it. We should have. That would have been a lot of fun. And, and it it would have been a perfect ending to to Hell High. Hell High was a great experience for me. I learned a lot from Douglas. One thing Douglas I think did as a director that. He kept it moving. He never gave up. He, he he just was like that little bulldog. He just kept fighting and fighting and fighting. And, and he had a lot of uh, people that were not cooperating nearly like they should have or could have. That's him. We st I stayed when I was up there. I stayed with Douglas's parents in, in Scarsdale. We'll hold, the whole thing was shot in White Plains and uh, around New York. And they were they were so gracious to me and to everybody else because we had all the, you know film people hanging out. I can't even imagine having those people in my house all the time. I mean, I, I think the my life would become a, a, a slasher movie. I'd have to kill them all. But uh, his parents were so gracious and so wonderful and 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 and. Uh, what you know, drive people around, and I, I, I remember I just took it on myself to walk the dog every day, Molly. So recently, uh, about five years ago, I finished a film called Cafe Purgatory, which is uh, more of an artistic uh, or art film, uh, and that's the biggest problem we've had with it, is it's, it's not any one genre. It's the best way to describe it is sort of like a Twilight Zone, and uh, we won the Fort Worth Film Festival with that and I won an award at the Fort Worth, Fort Worth Film Festival and it was a, a very gratifying experience and a lot of fun and uh, I've recently just finished uh, uh, a film called Living Nightmare and it's very edgy and unusual and anything can happen and uh, uh, it was it was fun it was hard work and it was a very very low budget and uh, but I liked what I could do to make the uh, anything can happen, so it was a very cinematic and f filmatic movie where things would just because it was a film and you knew it was a film, you could do it. very pliable, and that was fun.
I would say Psycho is, is really the only horror movie I've ever seen that I really thought, well, that's a good movie. Most of them just don't appeal to me, I, I, uh, which is kind of an odd thing, I guess. But uh, I like the unexpectedness of Psycho, and I guess that's what horror films are all about. It was a great experience, and uh, uh, I, I'm glad it happened to me. It was uh, a lot of fun. And thank you for uh, letting me talk about it and uh, share my experiences of Hell High with you. And uh, I hope it does. I hope you enjoy the movie. I'm ready for my close-up. <laughs> I always wanted to be an actress. I can't remember a time in my life from a young child not wanting to be in the business. My dream was to just get to New York. I went right after high school and got on a bus. I didn't even have a place to stay. Um, I remember calling a friend uh, that was uh, going to NYU and I just called her and said, could I stay with you? And she said her apartment was about as big as a bathroom and I slept on the linoleum floor and I just, I was so excited to be there, um, just, you know, uh, then eventually uh, that led to staying with uh, other girls in the business, and then I got my own apartment with a girl, and I met my agent in the elevator, and this all happened very quickly. Uh, I met my agent in the elevator, who uh, eventually became a very big agent. He took me around to my first audition, right around the corner because I was on 45th Street between 8th and 9th in the, in the Broadway district. And uh, I went to an audition and got the job, my first audition. Um, it was a, a, a redo with Ethel Merman in Call Me Madam. And uh, from then on, I, I didn't even audition. I went from that show right, right directly to another show because apparently they had seen me in that show and uh, things just developed. He had told me uh, about this project and he did not want me to do it because there was apparently some nudity in it. And I just wanted to work. So anyway, I went down there. I remember reading and very, very briefly, I think Doug Grossman was there. If he wasn't there at the first audition, he was there at the second, because I remember him well. It was very nice. It was very low-key, very comfortable. Just your audition where it's for a film and you get the sides and the horror of it, I, I didn't see it that way. 
I saw it as a storyline about a woman who was traumatized as a child. And the way it was dealt with was medication, obviously. And um, so I, I never saw it as a horror film, you know, um, just a, a storyline of a tragic situation of a woman who, you know, was isolating in her life over that tragedy. She was a woman who um, lived a certain life uh, that was traumatized early on. Um, it looked like uh, she was quite, you know, uh, cared for in, in uh, how they portrayed her in this film, with, you know, the way they dressed her. And, so her world was her make-believe world. And early on when this traumatic experience happened, and I think she probably never told anyone, but my assumption was when looking at the character that she was a traumatized child and it had never been dealt with. You know, Brooke lived in a, a very isolated, very private world. And she navigated her, her life into education and tried to, you know, help other children see, you know, how to navigate their lives. And when she came across uh, these groups of people that were thrashing out, she didn't know really how to handle that. I think that she was a very sympathetic character um, and had no awareness as to how to get help or even think that she needed it, that she needed to keep everything, you know, down and, and uh, controlled. And when this trauma happened, where these young adults violated her in such a, an aggressive way, uh, her only her only response would have been her life of oppression where she just exploded into what you see in the film um, you know people in life when they're oppressed or they they experience dramatic situations um, this can often happen it's like a pressure cooker and that's exactly what you'll see. The section where uh, the pea soup was dumped on my head was interesting. Um, I remember specifically where we were. We were in the, uh, it was sort of a sunroom library, uh, like a sunroom area. And I remember the details of the room. There was a lot of, you know, glass and windows. And I remember everybody being very um, careful to make it as easy as possible. So it wasn't, you know, uh, difficult for, for me to go through it. And, you know, whatever difficulty, uh, I used it, you know, because it was supposed to traumatize me. And, it, and so, 
whatever discomfort I felt about, you know, it coming down all over me and all of that, I expected, you know, I, for me, I, I felt more the better. I've never, ever, or, or before or since, done anything to do with any kind of nudity. And I was really nervous and concerned, like, uh, you know, um, but it was a little bit magical, you know? Um, it was very private. Doug laid the groundwork. You know, Stephen was just wonderful talking with him. And I just, you know, felt really, really okay. I remember the, the shower, getting in the shower, and, you know, they had everything making sure that I was totally protected as far as they could in their, in their ability, you know. Um, but it, it, was, it was okay. I, I mean, I was concerned, nervous, you know, that what it was going to look like. And, um, but it wound up being lovely, absolutely, because of that. You know, the moment of the dramatic, almost rape scene was very, very active, but, you know, I knew personally what was going to happen and not happen and I just used sensory things that helped me move through some of it. It, it wasn't, you know, traumatic, although the idea of, of any kind of abuse is traumatic. It just was part of what was done prior, you know, starting with the pea soup, starting, you know, and all of the trauma and the physicalness of Chris had a real impact on me. I didn't want you to come back. I want you to go away. I want you to go away forever. The transformation from being, you know, appropriate to Muris, you say, and, and appropriate in the real world into, you know, sort of animal reactions to abuse, I, you know, is something that I, I personally can relate to. I am a very sensitive person and I try to, in my own life, put my best foot forward. But when things happen, for me, I can get to a very emotional state and a lot of rage and I could really relate to what she was going through and really express it. It's sort of a core thing, you know. I think we all have that. I think if we're pushed and hurt and pushed and hurt, that any of us can really relate to thrashing out and, and really, really wanting to get back, protect, push back, push back. I never felt that it was an acting job. It was real feelings about people who just took advantage. I'll get you to a hospital. 
I won't let that idiot Dickens hurt you anymore. It's a miracle. Come on, let's... I remember that um, the activity of um, taking the rock and pounding, you know, hitting her first and then knocking her out, and the momentum of that physical activity, I, I remember it propelled me into doing it again and again and again and again, as if it, that activity overtook my emotions, my thinking. Now. <laughs> The shooting location, uh, I'm familiar with Mamaroneck, which is where it was shot. It was in a house. Um, it, it was a very uh, lovely, I would say, casually upscale house and um, very appropriate. And uh, since I lived across the river from it, uh, it wasn't hard for me to get to. And the fact that it was night shooting, uh, you know, uh, I already had a, a child. Um, so I had to maneuver my time and make sure that I was up and running at night and then up and running the following day. So, um, it's, you know, a juggling act, you know, that kind of thing. I remember Chris Stryker really well. Um, he and I had a special bond because we worked so much together there and he and I have, have a little bit of uh, devilness in us, and he certainly did, and so do I. So um, he was really quite special. It, it was just a, a, a wonderful, tight group. We really got along. There was no issues whatsoever. I remember eating a, a lot of candy because we were trying to stay up, stay connected, but we really had a good time as far as how long uh, we were shooting, I don't really recall that much, but um, I do know that we had a, a long break. And in that break, I uh, became pregnant. So when they called me uh, to come back and shoot, I said, oh, I'm pregnant, you know. So uh, well, I wasn't sure how that was going to work in the film, but we had gotten quite a few scenes under there are built. So yeah, <laughs> we managed. As far as the title goes and, and what I recall about um, uh, what it was when we were shooting, I think it was, what do you want to do tonight? I, I honestly think that's what the title was. But then I saw a poster later that was called Raging Fury, which I don't think was the right idea for this film. I like the title Hell High because it's an alliteration. Um, it says it quickly. I think what do you want to do tonight is too lengthy. And that would be my take. Not that anyone's asking me. <laughs> she doesn't miss a trick. All right, you can put your pencils down. Doug Grossman. Ah, oh, I, I remember him so well. So funny. He, I remember him even at the audition. He was so, so lovely. 
so uh, kind. He just uh, basically allowed you to come forth with whatever was working for you. He never, you, you never felt that Doug wanted you to do it his way or this way or that way. He would just talk to you as someone that was interested. He, um, you know, he, he just was truly uh, wonderful. Um, yeah, I have nothing but accolades to talk about Doug. There's going to be big trouble if you don't turn your head in this direction. I said eyes to me. Well, I, I did not see it in a theater. Um, I saw it, uh, I think I saw it on the television. Or I, I really don't know where I first saw it. I'm trying to think back. You would think that after working on a film so intimately that I'd be, you know, really trying to follow it and follow it, but I, I didn't. Um, I tend to be like that. I, I, I tend to work hard and, you know, do the best job I can in getting the job and then doing the job as passionately as I, 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 I do. And then I let it go and, you know, sort of reflect on the experience and sort of go along to whatever's next. You know, Hell High, um, you know, was there, but um, as I said, I started out in musicals and then I went on to uh, soap operas. And so I went from one soap opera to the next. I was on Love is a Many Splendor Thing. And then I went on to All My Children. There, I was there for 13 episodes slotted. It was for a certain episode where I was um, to be on the show. I was a, a wealthy woman who had a child, but I had uh, a problem with abusing my child. And that's when a child abuse first came into focus. And they transported across the bottom of my episodes a place uh, called Cope, Hope, Cope, to get help. And I remember 67 people called in to get help from the episodes from All My Children and my storyline. Then from that show, I was brought in to audition for The Guiding Light and was supposed to be there for 10 episodes and wound up being under contract for years and years. After that show, I was on One Life to Live briefly and then Another World. <laughs> so I've done a tremendous amount of work in world of soaps and then as I mentioned before I have shot over a hundred commercials in my life. Um, I did a very small thing in the French Connection with Gene Ackman and uh, William Friedkin. That was an amazing experience. I'm very grateful. I'm grateful that you know Doug put this together. He wrote it. He stuck with it even after you know we had to stop I'm really grateful for the, you know, Steve, the cameraman, um, and you, even for 
producing this and following his dream to get it remastered. I'm absolutely thrilled at the restoration. I just viewed it. It's so beautiful. And the color and the, the density, it's just really, really well done. You know, you hope that when you're in the world of acting, that you have an impact somehow, that somehow you make a difference in some affect somebody. And um, I, I feel like this is doing it, uh, whatever which way, you know. And uh, if it brings a lot of fun, you know, for people's lives or, or it makes someone think about something differently, we've done our job.